We forgot what it's like to eat real food. We forgot what it's like to watch a human being be born and then die. Microdosing psilocybin would be very effective for many, 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 many people. I felt this overwhelming feeling of clarity because of the disassociative state. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Good Trip Podcast. I'm your host, Brent Pella. You already know this is a limited series of conversations with incredible people from the fields of entertainment, medicine, business, and beyond, each with their own unique stories, perspectives, and experiences regarding psychedelics, psychedelic medicine, psychedelic therapy, personal use, and other amazing stories. Of which this man, Dr. Gary Schliffer, has plenty. This is a good buddy of mine. He's a doctor and the founder of Evolve Healthcare out here in the greater Los Angeles area, specializing in preventative medicine. And he also has a very deep history with ketamine therapy. He's an advocate for ketamine therapy and knows just a whole lot, almost too much. I, I would I would say that Gary knows almost too much about this subject matter. Uh, you know, it's it's awesome to sit down and talk with a guy who is trained through the entire Western medicine training philosophy and program, but has found a way to navigate his own medical practice outside of the maybe traditional doctrine of Western medicine. And he's doing that with Evolve. He's doing that with his uh, stresses on nutrition, ancestral nutrition, um, and just how to, how to be a homo sapien according to what works best for your individual body. It's an incredible uh, line of work, and I'm so happy to be connected to Gary and, and to hear all of the things that he's working on and what he believes in. He's got such a passion for his work. We did uh, a deep dive into how he first got into psychedelics, how he started integrating psychedelics into his own personal practices, and how ketamine therapy and uh, other forms of psychedelic therapy have had a very tangible noticeable, nearly immediate positive impact on patients that he has interacted with directly. All that and so much more in this week's episode. But first, a super quick word from our sponsor, Doc Parsley's Sleep Remedy. Now, this is a product that was created by Dr. Kirk Parsley, a former Navy SEAL who's actually on an episode of the Good Trip podcast coming out soon. And during that show, we talked a bit about his experience working with fellow veterans to get them off of prescription pills and off of sleeping pills that are so damaging to your body. And it really inspired him to create Sleep Remedy, which is a blend of different ingredients like magnesium, 5-HTP, L-tryptophan, and melatonin, all of which are meant to combine and mimic your body's natural progression into sleep. So if you have trouble sleeping at night, falling asleep, relaxing into sleep, or, or if you wake up feeling not fully energized and refreshed from a good night's sleep, I highly recommend checking out docparsley.com slash brents to get a discount on Doc Parsley's sleep remedy, which comes as either tea that you can have before bed or capsules if you're not into drinking liquids before bed. And I highly recommend it. I had a great night's sleep last night. You could tell because of how much I'm smiling right now. Do you see the smile? That's a good smile, baby. That's a good sleep smile. And that came from Doc Parsley's Sleep Remedy, which I have had such a good time integrating into my overall wellness routine. So again, 
docparsley.com slash Brent for a discount. The Good Trip Podcast also brought to you by Odyssey. Odyssey is a sparkling caffeinated beverage that I absolutely love. It comes in four flavors. It's got 85 milligrams of caffeine from green tea, and it's got 2,500 milligrams of mushrooms. Not magic mushrooms, but don't let that deter you because these mushrooms are meant to sharpen your focus, your creative edge, and your ability to get through your day and accomplish all your tasks with clean, smooth energy, no jitters, no anxiety, none of that. You can trust me because I have at least one of these every day. Odyssey is a sparkling mushroom elixir that you can find on Amazon and online at odysseyelixir.com and in various stores across the country, Albertsons, CVS's, um, and a couple others. You can go to odysseyelixir.com. There's a store locator, and you can also order online from their website. Highly, highly recommend you check out Odyssey Elixir. It is delicious. So without further ado, please enjoy this uninterrupted trip with my good buddy, Dr. Gary Schliffer. What's up, brother? Good to see you. You're like a doctor bro, dude. I'm doctor bro. You're like doctor bro, dude. Yeah. Has anybody you. ever called you that? I like take any of your that patients? As, I take that as the highest compliment. Okay, cool. Uh, you should. Um, yeah. I just I'm a I'm I'm myself. I don't know. Yeah. I guess I'm a bro, but uh <laughs> in a good way. In a good way, yeah. yeah. I think um People are just a little too formal in medicine, and I think people need to be a little more relaxed. That's my approach. It seems to be more palatable to people. Did you have that thought when you were going through med school, too? Would you look around and be like, damn, all these people have a stick up their ass? Um, no, I, I was just always myself, and everyone is just so conforming. Like yeah. training, the people they pick to become doctors, the whole thing, it's like, forces you to conform to this like way of doing things. Yeah. And ultimately it's because they just want you to follow the rules. Yeah. That's, that's not medicine. Medicine is an art. Everyone has to think for themselves. So I always did that. It was attractive to everyone except the leadership. Mm -hmm. The leadership liked me, but they were always like, like keep a distance sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but then in private practice, it's been very useful because I think it's, it's just like a, it's just so different than most practices or most doctors. And it's, it's attractive to people, you know, is that because you have more freedom in private practice to kind of operate however you want. Yeah. I mean, within, you know, within limits, within limits yeah. I, I think, you know, I think some people take it too far where they just become like, I'm overall Western medicine and I have to just do this alternative stuff or whatever thing I'm really into, which is cool. I think that the thing that I bring that's different is I really respect Western medicine. I love the training I got. I mm -hmm. love all the information. I, I love evidence-based medicine and research and stuff, but you, you can't just take that and that that's all you get. You know, you have to also integrate, you know, psychedelic medicine and Eastern medicine and traditional practices that aren't technically Eastern medicine that were just lost, lost to the generations. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, I think that's the trick. Like that's the real trick is embrace Western medicine, embrace everything else and present something to your patient. That's for them. Like mm -hmm. really individual. It's very challenging. It's very hard. Like we off air, we were just talking about how difficult it is to run a practice. It's incredibly yeah. overwhelming. Um, but it's gratifying. It like feels really good. Um, so yeah, I think it really works for me, but I don't think it would work for a lot of people. I had so much guidance from 
Uh, my parents who are, uh, my mom is a physician and I ran my mom's office for many decades. And then his friends in their fifties and sixties were always mentoring me when I was your parents, your parents' friends. Mm -hmm. Did your parents practice medicine outside of the U S before coming out here? My mom was a family doctor in Russia. Okay. And then she came here and became a podiatrist because at the time it was much easier. She had two small kids immigrated to America, yeah. like in her thirties. So she was able to go to through podiatry school, um, much easier. Do you know, uh, anything about like the Eastern Europe, I guess is Russia Eastern European. Yeah, yeah. yeah it is. Yeah, Eastern. Yeah. Do you know, do you know if they have a similar approach to medicine that we do as far as like the strictness of thinking like or, or do they encourage outside of the box thinking and do they encourage practices within less traditional medicines like holistic wellness or um i don't think preventative so. care no i don't know for a fact i don't think so their system is different at least i only know what my mom went through but basically you don't go to undergrad and then decide that you want to go to med school like you you go to upper you know, post high school, you you go to medical training and it's like, that's what it is. There's no like liberal arts degree or, or like undergraduate in science. So my mom yeah. went straight to school, got trained, I think it was six years. And then they throw her, threw her in and she was doing a combination of family practice and psychiatry. Oh, wow. Psychiatry, which it sounded all very traditional. And, and, and again, you know, we we're going to talk about psychedelics. Russia was quick to uh, illegalize all of these drugs yeah. as well. You know, as soon as American drug war started, uh, you know, all the rest of the countries followed in suit. You know, um, everyone made MDMA illegal and psilocybin illegal like a year after we did sort of thing. Um, actually, a lot of great research came out of Russia uh, in ketamine specifically there. You know, they have obviously a history of alcohol mm -hmm. issues. Um, so there's some great research. I think it's from the 90s uh, looking at ketamine assisted psychotherapy for alcohol uh, abuse. And it was very effective. And it's wow. like what really pushed me I, when I saw those studies, I was like, wow, ketamine, there's really something to this ketamine stuff. So, yeah, I think Russia, not different. I can't imagine it would be very different, um, yeah. you know. What were your parents' reaction when you started getting into ketamine therapy and like getting into psychedelics a little bit? Did you was it hard to tell them because they come from that type of background? I mean, Russia will lock up somebody for having a drop of weed oil in their backpack. So I can only imagine what you know practice CBD doctors would be oil. like. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my mom and dad are like any person who grew up, you know, over the last fifty years was indoctrinated into the whole um, drug war concept that all of these yeah. illegal drugs are bad. Um, uh, so I, I'm, I'm now very open about the fact that I've used marijuana specifically throughout my life to just keep myself happy, keep an even mind creativity. I use it like before a workout or a long run, it helps me get into a meditative state. Um, then as I went into medical school and residency, I always tried to, you know, be a good boy and like not. And then I, I just, it was always so challenging and I watched everyone suffer and I had a tool. Like I had a tool, it was built in. It was because I grew up in the valley, listening to Bob Marley and Sublime, and I always thought it was just something that I did, and I felt bad about it. And you know, like we were kids, like yeah. smoking in a car, and all. My parents got mad at me a lot, but as I kind of grew up, especially going through medical training, I was I was watching all of my colleagues get depressed, get heavy, lose their motivation, um, and sure enough, they're on antidepressants or they're having real, real difficulties. Um, and I had a tool, I had a tool. And so then, so that, so then as I got into residency, 
Um, I was in the Midwest and that's like very non-drug culture. And I tried it again and I watched everyone like intern year and in internal medicine residency is brutal. Mm-hmm. It's brutal. I've like, heard, yeah. Like 36 hour calls every three days. Isn't that bad? How is that right? Like don't your body needs sleep. Anybody, you know, I, I had uh, uh, Kirk Parsley on here, Dr. Sleep Remedy. Mm-hmm. Do you know what that is? Mm-hmm. So he and he broke everything down for me sleep wise. And I was thinking while we were talking even, and now I'm thinking now, it's like, how could doctors make each other go 36 straight hours? Like, don't you, you should be at the forefront of knowing how that impacts your, like your ability to operate, right? What is that? I mean, it seems like an obvious thing. It's because this thing of lifestyle medicine uh, as, as lifestyle, as a way to heal yourself and stay healthy is not part of the Western medical system. Mm-hmm. And so it's not part of what we deliver. It's not part of what we do as in our training. It, lifestyle is not considered a medical treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why I've latched onto it. Cause I'm like, Oh my God, if I can just teach people how to cold plunge and how to meditate and how to exercise appropriately, you can cure and heal. And yeah. that, that's the goal, right? So no, I, I, I think that doctors are no different than the layman when it comes to lifestyle. And that's why, in fact, the mental health issues in medicine, especially like uh, doctors, it's terrible. You know, uh, I brought to you, uh, up to you, and maybe you'll talk to her one day, Dr. Lita Fatemi. Uh, she she worked uh, in a major university, uh, and she recently switched and is working on uh, psychedelic medicine. And she actually is doing spots on NBC and trying to promote this idea. But her angle is physician wellness because the. Uh, Rates of depression, burnout is what we call it. It's just depression and anxiety from a really difficult and and unforgiving career. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, it's a real problem. Suicide rates with physicians are much higher than the population at whole. So she is trying to actually do what, what, what kind of you're suggesting is promote psychedelics and promote mindfulness to physicians. There is none of that. So... So it was a badge of honor to stay up for 32 hours and do all the work, you know, Mm. I can argue it both ways. Like, so I could play devil's advocate. I can say that it's took years off my life. It was brutal and miserable. Perhaps there was some performance decrease at, you know, hour 31 or whatever, Mm -hmm. but also just to play with the other side. It makes what I do today very easy because I can perform, you know, really like, in-depth medical analysis. I'm an internist, so I, I'm a thinker. I, I don't do his procedures. I like analyze, I do differentials. I come up with treatment plans, whatever. Mm. Um, I can do that <laughs> uh, uh, with 10%. Like I, it's just so programmed. I've done it not 10,000, a hundred thousand times over and over in, in every condition. So there's a benefit to pushing yourself to the extreme and learning how to perform under that kind of pressure. Yeah. And I think that if, if residency is too easy, it's too cake, then when you get into a, you know, a clinical situation where you're the provider and things get really hairy, like a pandemic hits and, you know, everyone is struggling and you're not ready to perform in that pressure, perhaps something was missing from your training. So I would say maybe a 32 to 36 hour call is extreme. But being in the hospital overnight and seeing what it looks like mm, when a okay. patient gets admitted at 6 a.m. You see the entire spectrum of what happens from beginning to end. Got you. Okay, your tool. Go back to your tool. So, yeah, I mean, marijuana, I think, is 
just a, such a powerful tool. Uh, for me, it was life changing, continues to be life changing. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, I, I promote, so you, the question was about my parents, my parents watched me go through this process and turn into a capable physician and like a nice person to people. And I have shared psychedelics and marijuana specifically with a lot of my friends. And so when a couple of my physician friends came who I had shared this with, we actually had gone to Burning Man together and had a magical experience. And the, the female physician who is a bit older than me and like very esteemed physician mm -hmm. talked to my parents about it and was like, this scary brought this to our lives. And this has been like game changing for us that you, I saw the moment where they were having that conversation and the gears turned that mm. opened up. And that was like, I don't know, seven years ago, eight years ago. So that opened up the door to marijuana. And then they listened to my podcast and me ranting about all the stuff I rant about. And, and they have always been very questioning of the system because they left the communist country and were right. Like, oh yeah, that's true. Okay. Yeah, so yes. they, they already had some level of uh, questioning authority and, and questioning systems. Yeah, like this whole like separation of people through COVID of like the blue pill or red pill, however you want to look at it. Mm -hmm. If you came from a communist country, like you're not blue pilled. Right. That, like you watched the outcome of that. Um, and that's not to say liberal or Republican. What I'm really saying is uh, realizing that, you know, these narratives, these stories, the fear mongering, it's not all true. There's part of it is true. Part of it is over, you know, yeah, dramatized yeah. for clicks. Part of it is over dramatized for political dealings and things. So they were very lucid on it. And then, um, yeah. And then with like ketamine and MDMA and psilocybin, they just, they just, they opened up, they opened up. And so, yeah, once I was already starting the ketamine program and once I was already you know, using marijuana, how people get off like addictive substances like benzos, mm -hmm. they already kind of saw that that was something that was there. So you, you were, um, were you in a position to prescribe marijuana you or were you prescribe marijuana? It's a right, right. It was a recommendation. So, so what, uh, why, how exactly does marijuana help somebody with a benzo addiction? Cause if that, that's kind of where I see your first step into that was my first step. the world of like plant medicines and psychedelic therapy, even though marijuana isn't psychedelic, psychoactive, I guess. Uh, or is it, is it an entheogen? There, there's these questions of like, what makes something really a psychedelic, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. MD, is MDMA a it's psychedelic? different for everybody. Yeah. I think it's these drugs. Oh, we're going all over the place, but it's drugs that don't fixate on your ego and on suppressing feelings, but rather drugs that open you up, drop your ego and open up your feelings. So mm -hmm. I think marijuana does that. All these other drugs do that. I, that's how I think about it as far as splitting it. And that's, we can talk about, I think where the Western medicine system struggles with it because most of the drugs that are legal in America and most of the drugs that are prescribed are sedating, suppressive, they numb you. They don't let you feel your feelings more. They don't yeah. let you explore your consciousness. If anything, they suppress your consciousness and like things like alcohol and cocaine, they build your ego. They make you feel more powerful, but it's not, it's fake. The healing, the transformation comes from dropping that feeling very uncomfortable and weird, seeing and feeling things that are very abnormal and letting go of the pretenses that we live in. So I do think marijuana falls into that category. Um, as far as how it helps people with addiction, look, it's first of all, it's not physiologically addictive, so you can 
smoke marijuana and stop it and you don't get a withdrawal syndrome like benzodiazepines like you can die if you just stop benzodiazepines and you're taking a high enough dose you don't die if you stop smoking lots of weed it, you just don't because the physiology doesn't work like that um, but I think most people are dealing with anxiety they're dealing with difficult life situations at home uh, insomnia you know these mm -hmm. kind of things and and I think marijuana is a tool it, it, it can really calm you down it can change your perspective uh, you don't need a lot to really get yourself there. And because it's not addictive, it's a great option for someone who's doing something that's very addictive and toxic. Um, you know, you could probably argue different ways, but I think it's pretty clear that the safety profile of marijuana compared to like an opiate or a benzo mm -hmm. is dramatically better. Yeah, it's, it's you know, incomparable. It's, yeah. I, we don't need to explain it to people yeah. like that's obvious, right? How, so, how long ago did you, was it when you first started recommending marijuana? What was that first step? Pretty much like as soon as I opened Evolve. Yeah. I, you know, I have a doctor patient confidentiality. I don't put it in the chart. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I do. If it's like very, very um, beneficial and it's a big part of the treatment, I do. Um, some people like don't want that in their chart because they still feel like it's illegal federally or whatever. So sure. I kind of like just meet the people where they're at. But um, look, in California, marijuana is available on every corner in a, like a really beautiful Apple. Well, it's, store. it's an essential business. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, 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 right. It's that important. So, so I think what most people that are coming to me are not people our age. They're people a little bit older. Sorry. Yeah. They're people a little bit older that need guidance. Like what kind of marijuana should I smoke? What's the formulation? A lot of older people that have never tried it. I like to give them something like a five to one or a four to one THC CBD vape pen. So they're not smoking the plant, which can feel weird. Right. Um, and it's not such a high level of THC. So they can kind of ease into it and they can get all these other benefits from the CBD component mm -hmm. with a little bit of THC. That's like a great, so that's the kind of guidance I'll step them into. Sometimes it's just a conversation of like, Hey, I, when I was younger, I smoked now, then I was like, it's bad. Now I would just want to try it because I don't want to drink alcohol every night what do you think and i'm like man maybe you should try an indica it's a little more relaxing don't get a super potent one that's 32 percent thc you're gonna like overdo it let's start with something like 25 percent or less so there's these little subtle things that actually the bud tenders talk about in a good marijuana dispensary the bud tenders are talking about this stuff but i think for a lot of people they need to hear it from a physician and um, i'm seeing more and more people uh physicians opening up shops where they're like doing that. They're just guiding people through marijuana mm. therapy. Mm -hmm. There's this one that really helps uh, parents with kids who have everything from autism to seizure disorders to other cognitive problems that are guiding them on how to use THC and CBD. And I've seen some pretty amazing stuff. I don't deal with peds. So I'm like, I'm not a great person to guide them, but mm -hmm. I'm the guy who's like, yeah, you should definitely think about marijuana. Cause you just tried 10 pharmaceuticals and all of them make your kid out of it and sedated and not, it's not better. Yeah. It's just different, bad than the behavioral issues. So yeah, I think, um, I try to just steer people and open people's minds to the marijuana. And I think it's like a very easy step in that psychedelic space. It's very, very safe. Yeah. That's a nice step into it. So, so if that was kind of your first step as a practicing professional, what was your first experience with psychedelics on a personal level? Like, did you not do, marijuana, not marijuana? Oh. Did, did, yeah. Not marijuana. Did you, did you try psychedelics prior to med school? Yes. Yeah, psychedelics were a part of my life since I was a late teen. Really? For me, I think I grew up in this culture of like, I listen, I read a lot of Hunter S. Thompson. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, I was a big fan of 60s and 70s era Where'd you music. grow up? In the Valley. In the Valley. In the okay. Valley. San yeah. Fernando Valley in Los Angeles. Yeah. You know, again, Bob Marley, Sublime, like the music culture was very much embedded in, in marijuana and mushrooms. I just didn't really get it. Mm-hmm. And then like as I became like, I think I was 17 or 18, um, I started trying psilocybin with my friends. And it was one of these things where we were knew we were doing something illegal, but the experiences were transformative. Like, cool. I am still great friends with those boys and girls from back then. I'm still good friends with them. And we it, we joke about it all the time. We have this friend group, and everyone's like a DJ, like a popular DJ, and like a very successful internet guy, and a lawyer, and a famous producer. Blah 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 blah. It like keeps going, and we all like bonded over doing magic mushrooms together, watching Fantasia, <laughs> running around the park, running around. I'll never forget it. We watched Fantasia. We ran around the park. We hugged each other. We laughed. Seniors and, in high school? Yeah, like junior, senior? yeah like seniors yeah. in high school, something like that. I think senior, maybe junior. That's so cool. And and yeah, it was so transformative and it was so benign. It felt so like not scary and it felt like our little secret. You know, it was our little thing that we did together who no brought one... mushrooms into the friend group do you remember you don't have to say a name no i don't remember it like that <laughs> i think we were all just exploring that space it okay. was such a part of the culture in the valley yeah yeah it was literally just there it wasn't like we were going to some drug dealer or like oh my god we right. gotta... it wasn't like that it was all readily available without being weird um that's like what alcohol was for my high school friends yeah, <laughs> we would get yeah. hammered at a park yeah and run around yeah, but we, I, 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 I was always scared of mushrooms. I, I remember hearing about people trying mushrooms and even smoking weed in high school. And uh, I, I played basketball all through high school and college. And I thought something about those drugs were like druggy drugs mm-hmm. and they would like mess up my brain forever. And I was completely within that sphere of thinking at the time. But it's hilarious whenever I hear somebody talk about this and how they did it in high school prior to their brain developing. It's well, like, I think... Back then, I we actually, it's hard to think back, you know, but there was a difference between the plant drugs, like the marijuana and psilocybin and all of the other drugs. The drug war was crazy, right? They told people PCP is going to make you like chew another person's head off or, you know, like all this weird, weird stuff, you know, that, that there's that famous thing you probably remember from when we were a kid. If you do LSD seven or 10 times, you're going to be clinically insane. That's yep. it. That, that, that was, these are all stories, you know, the, they were memes before we had the internet mm-hmm. and they painted all these broad strokes about all the drugs when they're all different drugs. Like literally every drug we would talk about are different, completely different mechanism of action, different safety profiles, different set and settings you should be in, uh, different goals of mm-hmm. what the drug is for. Right. So, you know, I remember having a very distinct line between psilocybin and and a weed which are plants or mushrooms plants yeah or like the chemical pill stuff i never touched the pill i never touched the powder until i was much older and i think that was a really good idea because it's the kids that are taking a lot of you know when you were like 16 and you i saw girls taking mdma every weekend mm-hmm. that's going to do a lot of damage i mean there there's a role for this stuff but when you're very very young and and again we weren't doing mushrooms like this was like a handful of experiences over the course of a year or two yeah like no more than 5 that i can even recall so like we were instinctually doing ceremonial 
rite of passage experiences without having any consciousness of it. Isn't that wild? It's wild. That's what people did over thousands of years too. That's crazy. You had it in you. The culture. Yeah. I really, I really think that Southern California music culture, mm -hmm. uh, it was but it, it was probably it was probably I mean I would venture a guess that it would be across America and potentially across the world because there just is something instinctual about that. Even going back to, you know, there's a tribe in uh, Finland called the Sami. Do you know? Who, have you ever heard of that? So the Sami they would have shamans that would go around every winter to people's houses, and if you were of a certain age, they would share mushrooms with you in, a, in ceremony. And you would have this transformative experience around the solstice. It's where we get Christmas from. It's yeah. a whole other story. Yeah, but, and there's all that uh, imagery of mushrooms yeah, yeah, within yeah. the Christmas. And so that would happen there. And yeah. then, you know, in, in China, they had their own thing. And all these other cultures would have their rites of passage that would include psychedelics for people that were around the age that you guys were going through. And there's there's got to be... It might be a little too out there and woo-woo, but it's it, there's something, I think, there that's just instinctual it's not woo -woo. in humanity to seek out those types of experiences within a friend group or a culture. I just think we evolved using psychoactive substances. Yeah. I think this is without a question. Uh, there's this great new book called The Immortality Key. Forget mm -hmm. the gentleman's name. He, he was He's a great speaker. And he wrote a book about his research. He's like an archaeologist, anthropologist. And basically they found evidence that even back in the Greek and Roman times, there was a, uh, they were using these rites of passage experiences. Eleusis is the city that they had and people would go there and have these secret experiences where they would drink this brew. Yeah. There was, there was a uh, ergot in the wine. Is that er what you were talking about? Yeah. Well, they, they found ergot, but they don't know exactly, but they know there were psychoactive substances in these pots. Yeah. And the clay that pots, the, clay that pots. That, the vessels that had the drinks. Yeah. That's just what they found. I think that there is way more like, hundreds of thousands of years. There's the stoned ape theory, which makes a whole lot of sense that mm -hmm. our ancestors were consuming these psychoactive substances, expanding their mind and helping drive culture and thinking. I think that's a fun way to think about it. I'm sure that's part of it, not like the whole story of evolution, mm -hmm. but a part of it. Yeah, so I think that we for sure evolved having those kind of shamanistic experiences. I think it was part of our culture until maybe just a couple hundred years ago. You know, Western medicine is very new. Yeah. You know, it's very, very new. And we have a very, very short memory. We forgot what it's like to eat real food. We forgot what it's like to watch a human being be born and then die. We forgot what it's like to work hard, like really hard physically. We forgot what it's like to have real tribal bonding experiences. It's still left within our culture. But things but like technological advancements and... I think it's the the Western medicine system really screwed up, screwed up drugs when they just monetized it, like to the point where it doesn't matter if it works or not. It's just about can I sell a pill to how many millions of people for every single day? Mm -hmm. It's not good business to say, here's some psilocybin. I'll see you in three months because you're going to feel good for three months. Right. It's oh, terrible business. It's terrible. But, or it's here's awful. some psilocybin. For your, bottom, for your bottom line? No. No. Can't do that. Which is why I still am guarded about what's going to happen in the future. Because if the drug companies start seeing their bottom line affected by the legalization of this stuff, it's not going to be such an easy story. They have, they can, 
they easily changed everyone's mind in the 50s and 60s about the benefits or the the risks, I suppose, of these drugs. What's to say they don't change it again? Like, sure, everyone's open-minded to it now, but look, these are very, very influential organizations. It's very easy to manipulate people's right. perspective. And with drugs, there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of mystery. So it's on a snap. They can make a story, blah, 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 blah. And then all of a sudden, it's the Dude, worst all thing it, in the world. All it takes is one person overdosing or something like that. Even though that, how many tens of thousands have died from prescribed pharmaceuticals. Um, but yeah, the I know MDMA is going into stage three trials. It's in it. Right I, now. Or it's in stage yeah. three trials right now. And then it'll be approved for therapeutic use. Uh, but as soon as that happens, yeah, I, I wonder what what do you think would happen after that if, if it if it comes to light that all these you know it's starting with veterans and then it'll move into um, typical society and all these people with PTSD and trauma are having these incredible moments of clarity and these transformative experiences where they don't need this drug and this drug and this drug and this drug. What's going to happen? How do, are they, I wonder if they're going to figure out a way to like overly monetize MDMA so that they can still keep their bottom line or, you know, God willing, we're, we finally move into the space where we're not so reliant on big pharma because we're dipping into those medicines. But that's like a that, prayer. You that, know what I mean? That's the part. That's I, a prayer. That's the part. I don't know that it's it's so much money. It's such a powerful entity, big yeah. pharma and big food. We talked about it on our last podcast on the mm -hmm. original podcast. Like these are, they control the world. Like they literally control the world in ways that is, are just super deceptive and subtle. And Which is hard. insane because they inform each other. They get you sick on the food. They fix you with the pills and then you get sick. It's insane. And then they pay the FDA. So the FDA is just their, you know, their little guinea pig or their little um, whatever, their tool, right? Yeah, like they, yeah. they, more than half of the money that the FDA gets comes from big pharma. So it's, um, I don't think, and, and I heard Rick Doblin talking about it recently. Like he also sees it. It's not like the, the coast, you know, the, the road is open and it's, there's not going to be bumps in the road. I think right now we're seeing this great revolution. We had some great books. We have these great speakers. We have, you know, people like you educating people and sharing the story. I just don't know that we're there yet. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's this other issue of, okay, if, if you make these drugs legal and you start selling them the way we sell marijuana, remember the conversation started, I, I made a distinction with marijuana and these other drugs. I, you like, you can smoke a ton of weed or eat a ton of, uh, eat a ton of weed. You'll be all met, like high, but you're going to come back out of it for the most part. If you really go crazy with these other drugs, you can do some, some cognitive issues. Like you can do some damage. So what I, I mean, in, in a dream situation, these are prescri prescribable drugs, um, but it, it seems like it's going the way of the, you know, just recreational use. Mushrooms will absolutely be yeah. a recreational drug. I, I know three people with mushroom companies. I know that sell. Dozens. Yeah, I mean that sell at music festivals. I've even seen one with a pop up booth, and the, and the, on the package it says psilocybin. I'm like, bro, this a is not legal. B, congratulations for figuring out how to be here at this festival. I think they're just trying, they're, but who's yeah. gonna bust them? Right, exactly. Yeah, especially not in the desert. Right. You know. I mean, no. I just saw. Um, there's a someone selling it online. There's just, you can mm -hmm. go online and like order some psilocybin. Look, I think microdose psilocybin is probably one of the best antidepressants that we have available to us. 
I do worry if people are going to like self-treat themselves. Um, I'd love to see it in a clinical setting. I hope MDMA goes the way of the clinical setting and I hope the whole MAPS thing, I hope there is some oversight and control. I do think MDMA is an amphetamine salt. It's very, very powerful. You can, you certainly can take too much and have a very, very scary experience or compromise yourself, your safety very rapidly with that drug. So I do worry if that becomes one of these, like, Hey, here's a chocolate. Oh, I took 20. Yeah. yeah I worry about that. I don't, I'm not super into that. I hope it doesn't get to that either. The way maps is doing it is pretty incredible though, because they're actually training therapists. They're recommend. I don't think they're requiring therapists to try MDMA, although they're highly recommending it. And of course you would want your MDMA therapists who have done MDMA um, but yeah, they're doing it with a ton of oversight from what I've heard. Would you want your psychiatrist to have tried an antidepressant? Phenomenal question. You know um, what I mean? yeah, I mean, yeah, I would, well, if they're going to, pers- I want uh, right. Like how would you, how would they, why would I trust somebody who's telling me to do Zoloft if they've never experienced fucking Zoloft? Cause they have other people that have experienced Zoloft and they're told by the company that they probably are invested in financially. So they're getting some type of kickback one way or the other. The doctors can't anymore. No, they can't anymore. No, 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 Since no. when? Uh, like the nineties, early two thousands. Oh, okay. Yeah. They got rid of that. Oh, well that's a good thing. Okay, great. It is a good thing. Um, it is a good thing. I always ask the question, especially when I meet a psychiatrist or a primary doctor that prescribed does a lot of mental health. I'm like, have look, I, I, it was most, mostly meant as a joke. You can't try all of the psychotropics, but I ask a lot of them and they've never tried anything. Something. Yeah, it they've doesn't have to be all anything. of them. No, no, no. no, no, no. But, they, but do you feel benefit from one of these things that you're prescribing? A lot of them have never tried any drugs because the kind of people that go into medicine or pharmacy are very like straight laced people that follow right. the rules. They're like, they worked very hard to get, to get that degree. They worked very hard to get to that position. And often those are people that have never tried anything. So, you know, back to the start of the call. Oh, you're the bro doctor. I'm just a person. <laughs> I'm just a person that has found myself to become a doctor while trying a million other things and mm-hmm. trying to be like a diverse human. And, and I think that comes across. I don't think that's the vast majority of providers because it's just so difficult to become a doctor. Like the, the, the barriers to entry are so overwhelming. Mm -hmm. It's it's like most people that are going to smoke some weed are like, I'm not going to be a doctor. That's crazy. I'm not trying to do that. So I think it's like a small, very select population of people that, that are providers, not just doctors, NPs, PAs. And, and now more and more, uh, over the last few years, especially people are leaving their traditional practices and opening their mind to these different treatments. I think that that's one of the benefits of the COVID situation is people saw the weaknesses of our healthcare system. They saw how unresponsive the healthcare system is. So they're trying to do their own thing, you know? Um, but, but in general, most people in healthcare are not super knowledgeable. They're certainly not experienced with psychedelic medicine. And they're just as fearful as any random yeah. person. And they, they're the same thing goes with food. I have to bring it up because it's like, such yeah, yeah, a, yeah, yeah. Like they don't see it as a priority. They don't get educated on it. They don't think about teaching people how to eat. They don't think about getting that education. So the fundamental thing that makes you healthy is what you put in your body. Like I've always said that, like the number one, you can exercise, you can meditate, you can do all this stuff. If you're not giving yourself good food or worse yet, if you're putting toxic stuff into your mouth all the time, you're not going to do well. You're not going to be healthy. 
and like doctors are the same as the regular population with that you know mm -hmm. they they don't and, and people look to them to help and and they're just as heavy they're just as diabetic they're just have just as many of these mental health problems if even more as i mentioned so it's it's a tough tough situation in healthcare it's there's too much you know like Right. Just recently, uh, Mark Cuban went on a whole rant on Twitter. Yeah, about, I saw that. Yeah. He saw that he was talking about like, um, you know, doctors. What was this like specific crux? He was basically he made a comment pulled up. about how Jamie, will you pull that up, please? <laughs> he made a comment about how doctors, you know, aren't the authority. And then Will Elon Musk was like, oh, we need to make a doctor panel to audit all of the content about health. And then he and then he had to backtrack and talk about how like oh doctors work so hard for their degree I don't want to disrespect them, it's all of it. <laughs> yeah, like a lot of he the doctors. Said, uh, uh, here's the top two. He said uh, Twitter over the last few days we can't trust the government. They will censor our right, they will censor our right to free speech. We can't trust government. They will give the wrong medical advice. We can't trust big tech. They will censor our free speech. We need government to regulate big tech. I want to share what I think about MDs. I love each and every one that busted their ass, borrowed too much money, sacrificed more than we can ever quantify in hopes of helping their patients. Medicine is an imprecise science. The uncertainties far outnumber the absolutes. This was a response to something he posted and earlier. There's, wait, about. there's more probably, yeah. Yeah. If people are interested, they could check it out. My point is there's this... There's a realization that there's a disconnect between reality and healthcare... At, like the healthcare system and the reality of helping people. Yeah. And, and everyone wants to do something better about it, but there's just so many challenges. If you just look at any of these topics, you can go on any social media platform and there's doctors promoting what I'm talking about. And then there's other doctors that are completely irate beside themselves saying my license should be taken away. Not me. Cause I don't actually talk about this stuff so much online. I'm just way too busy to sit there and type stuff online. Yep. But like I, I watch my colleagues that are promoting this stuff actively and they just get lit up by their other colleagues. It's just like, it's really, really hard to change people's opinion. And when you go through so much training and you're so aggressively indoctrinated into a way of thinking, you can't possibly be wrong. I right. couldn't have possibly spent $200,000 on my medical education and most of it is wrong. Well, before I even went to med school, there's the saying that by the time you graduate your training, 50% of what you know is irrelevant. The reality is like 80 or 90% of it mm. is irrelevant because 50% of it has already changed and another ch big chunk of it is made up. So breakfast is the most important meal of the day is made up. Right. That is a made up. Fact. That was marketing. That was marketing. Yeah. Famously. Yeah. But not so famously because I hear doctors repeating it all the time. And still, I, do you still hear that today? all the time, all the time? And uh, they still talk about they gotta it. Add two words to the end of that sentence. Breakfast is the most important meal of the day to skip, to skip, Ooh. to skip, to skip. It needs two words at the end of it. Technically intermittent fasting strategies are best if you do breakfast and lunch, but breakfast, not right when you wake up, right? No, you, but, you but, breakfast like if I, so I wake up around eight, I don't eat until like noon. Yeah. Because I skip breakfast, so my breakfast is. We call that lunch, but yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Break fast, you're breaking the fast, whatever. Right. Uh, yeah, but like it, assuming that you don't wake up and immediately have to break your fast, yeah, whatever. Um, look, there's so many of these misunderstandings. I I have more of these like quick references for food because I'm so obsessed with it. Mm -hmm. But it's it's all it's the whole. It's not even just psychedelics. It's like it's like diabetes or weight management. You know, everyone's just so quick to jump on something. 
It's like, oh, I heard Elon Musk injected uh, some eglutide, trulicity. That's it. Now every single person is coming to my clinic. I want that. I want that. Mm -hmm. I want that. All of a sudden, everyone's willing to spend $700 on a course of trulicity so that they can lose five pounds. And I'm like, but you won't pay a $40 copay. It's just, it's all, it's all messed up. Mm -hmm. It's all messed up. It's so, guys, if if you take anything from this conversation... (laughs) Doctors are in a really tough situation. Yeah. Whatever they believe, whether they believe what I'm talking about or there's traditional Western medicine doctors, the pressure, like it's like a pressure cooker, the pressure from all sides, from the patient, from the insurer, from the employer, from the pharmacy, from the book, it's like so overwhelming that when, when you like get mad at your doctor for something or other and they just like, they're just, they're, you're, it's done. It's like mm-hmm. whatever I have to do to get out of the visit. Because you don't realize we're seeing 20 or 30 a day. Most doctors are seeing at least 15 or 20. It's so challenging. Yeah. And by the way, when that visit is done, everything needs to be documented. Or you need to pay someone to document it. Yeah. I don't, I don't want people to feel like sympathy. You just brought it up. No, I do. I want people to feel sympathy for the providers. Whatever they believe. They are put in an impossible situation where they're making sometimes life or death decisions, but they have to oblige this concept of the customer's always right. Mm. This concept of like service industry, like a, a doctor's office is not McDonald's, but people treat it as such. You know, people, the doctor walks in and they're like still on their phone. That, that whole thing of like respecting the doctor long gone. By the time I became a doctor 10 years ago, it was gone. It, no, no one really cares. You're just, you're just the guy to say, Hey, I read something online that I disagree. And the point is disagree with me. It's fine. But like show respect to providers, not just because of what they're saying or recommending, but because of the challenge and the overwhelming burden they must carry. Yeah. Not just the decision-making, but the customer service aspect of it mm-hmm. and the, uh, the liability aspect of it, the, the, the fear of lawsuits, the fear of, you know, uh, getting sued, the fear of, dude, it's just fear. Like just I, fear. I, I can't, fear. I can't, there's so much fear and, yeah. and it's, it's founded in a system that is broken and in a system that pressures people so much to do things they don't want to do. You know, I was, if you go through that whole feed, people talk, people in the comment section, they're really like clear about this that like they have friends that are doctors that don't that agree or don't agree with whatever's happening and they still can't practice that way because if they try to the insurance company their employer or the patient or the pharmacy will pressure them into just doing what you're supposed to do quote unquote supposed to do there's so many pressures it's really really challenging can we get to a place where doctors are operating outside of these pressures it feels like we're moving there Maybe I'm in a bubble because I know people like you and other people in the med- in the medical world that don't operate as much within those parameters of, of fear and traditional systemic pressures. But it feels like we're moving into a place where there's at least more of a, a conscious approach that people are taking for their own health that doesn't fall within the strict guidelines of, you know, these traditional medicinal recommendations. I hope so. I, hope so. I don't know that I see a huge movement in the providers i think there's more providers stepping into that space but i don't like i don't feel like again i think that you invest 
I think that the people are picked to become physicians that are going to follow rules and that are going to fall in line. So you start with people that are very, very motivated to follow rules. Mm -hmm. You then charge a ludicrous amount for the training. You then train them so hard. It's like being pot committed in and poker, right? Once you got all your chips on the table and you're like looking at that river card at the end, like it's very hard to be like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to just take that loss. because right. I'm going to lose this hand. It's like, no, I have to keep going. I have to keep going. Cause you know, when, when I brought up even something like marijuana or intermittent fasting or now psilocybin to someone who's been practicing medicine, I've been doing it for 10 years. Someone who's been doing it for like 20 years or 30 years. Who, who am I to tell them that what they did for 20 or 30 years is wrong? That's And I get their perspective. Like who is this young whippersnapper telling sure, me sure. I'm wrong, you know? It's very hard to change. So maybe what you're saying is maybe there's a generation of physicians like coming up now that in 20 years will make a difference. Now, will the pharmaceutical companies put, you know, intervene before that and make some stories or, or create some kind of pushback to this whole thing? I, I hope not, but I, I don't know. I think that um, it's really beautiful in America that we have states. Mm-hmm. People, I don't. I think they take it for granted a bit. Yes, you have the feds, but the, you can move to a state that is has laws and has people that are more like minded. Yeah. Or another state that, if you're differently minded, mm -hmm. that is amazing. It is amazing to be able to go. You know, I loved California, but now I really, you know, I don't like the politics here. I'm going to move to Austin, and all of a sudden, an hour and a half flight, and you're living around. Same language, same food, but every the, the laws are different and the mm -hmm. environment is different. That's incredibly powerful. That's a freedom that you do not get to appreciate in many other places, if anywhere. I don't know another country yeah. that offers that sort of, you know, uh, diversity of thought. So there's something beautiful about America, um, but I do worry that it's not going to be like everyone. I think there's going to be people that open up their consciousness. There's going to be states that are going to allow doctors and people to manipulate their consciousness with substances but there's also going to be places. there's also going to be fucking texas that claims to be the most freest fucking state those hypocritical fucks dude it's i <laughs> i bitch about this all the time to my friends that live in texas that are like yeah hey, it's the free why don't you move to texas where you have freedom i'm like yeah dude try smoking weed outside yeah. Yeah. try it Try oh, nobody cares. It's, it's still illegal. It's crazy. Oh, they care. It's wild. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. So I want to go back. Uh, you're tripping out watching Fantasia with all your homies. Um, then you get into med school and you're practicing medicine in the Midwest. During that time, during your formative years, were you also actively reaching out for psychedelic substances on a personal growth motivation or in any other type of way where you were, were mushrooms or any other substances part of your like personal life at that time? Yeah, I think, um, I, uh, when I practice medicine, I do it with a very clear mind and a huge heart. And that is a gift and a curse because sometimes one patient can destroy my week because I'm completely open. And other times I can have a beautiful encounter and change my whole like thinking because mm -hmm. I'm open. So first of all, I don't know if I need to clarify, like when I practice medicine and I'm working, it's like I'm, I'm a hundred percent sober minus my caffeine. Sure. Uh, just cause the way you answered that question, I just want to be clear. Like I, however, have 
always made uh, these what we in the space now call these rites of passage ceremonies or bonding ceremonies. To me, drugs have always played that role. I have never like, let's do Molly on a Saturday because we got nothing to do. That never made sense to my brain. Um, but you should I try it. It makes, uh, a lot, it makes a lot of sense on a Saturday. Yeah. Just sitting Saturday morning. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've always instinctually had these transformative group experiences. Um, and we can talk about ketamine. Ketamine's a little bit different. I think I'm like mostly talking about, so MDMA, psilocybin and marijuana, having transformative group experiences, bonding over music, over festivals, over a beach, over a campfire, I've had those experiences since my late teens throughout my life. It's, I got married. I'm a lot more serious now. I have businesses. I don't have the opportunities to have those. You know, it takes time to recover. So I always did it with an intention. I always, until, what you know, the book, uh, How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan, it outlined mm -hmm. it and I was so in love with it because I'm like, oh my God, you just put words to the thing that I always just did. I always set an intention. There was always a reason yeah. to get with, together with my friends, whether it was to see each other after a long time, whether it was to bond over some accomplishment, whether it was to celebrate something, there's always an intention to it. Even when I was like young, there was an intention to like, let's explore this experience. That's why mm -hmm. we weren't just that, 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 the whole Fantasia thing was very intentional. We wanted to see that, that experience. What does it mean? We had read about it and we wanted to mm. like explore that thing, cool. which we did. And it was transformative. Yeah. So yeah, I think I like, at least with those three substances, I've always used them. Uh, well, marijuana more like on the daily to end of day, instead of a glass of wine sort of thing. Uh, but with MDMA and psilocybin, never frequently, but always thoughtfully with intention. I was always obsessed with sudden setting. To me, that was the thing that made the most sense because everyone would talk about bad trips and I'm like, it's not a bad trip. It's the asshole sitting across from me. That's the bad trip. Right. Or it's the like, why do we do drugs and it's freezing cold and I have no water? That's mm -hmm. insane. Mm -hmm. Like, why would I do that? Mm -hmm. Right. So I was always the guy that's like, no, 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 no. Let's, okay, we got to get the spot. It's going to be here. We got to make sure we're safe. Everyone's got like, we're not driving anywhere. We got a place to sleep. We got our food situation. Like there was always a lot of planning. And I think for that reason, I never really had any like terrible experiences. And all my, my friends were always like attracted to it because there was thought put into it. If you just like willy nilly pop a Molly, it can go real South. Like I said, but if you're doing it very thoughtfully, if you're thinking about the milligrams, if you know exactly your sources, you know exactly what you're taking. You know exactly where you're going to be. You, you control all these variables that can really make things dangerous and uncomfortable. Then it's a very beautiful, like overwhelmingly beautiful and loving and transformative experience. So yes, I've done that throughout. Not very frequently, but frequently enough to keep my sanity. Mm -hmm. You know, I've never been on an antidepressant because of that. Because I, like I said, I have my tools. Um, so yeah, so that's what I've done throughout. Um, I will share now my ketamine experience because I think it's very important. Um, I discovered ketamine through a friend who did it recreationally. I was scared of ketamine because I never wanted to. I'm scared of all the drugs. Like, yeah. I'm, never, I'm not like, oh my God, let's just do it. Like It's always fear-based because you got to have that fear to respect it. You have to learn about it. You have to understand what you're doing. You really have to understand what you're doing. And you have to take it slow. And you have to be around people that have experienced. Like You have to be shamaned into it. So it was always that. Um, but I got to a point a few years ago, 
been quite a bit of time now where I was stuck. I was like living with my parents. Um, the business was just starting. Like, what am I doing? Is this person good in my life? Is that person good in my life? What am I doing today to day? And I tried ketamine sort of accidentally, long story, with a friend, uh, with a bunch of friends. And I was kind of like shocked by it. And then I, I felt this overwhelming feeling of clarity because of the disassociative state. The disassociative state was cool at that moment. But the clarity I felt after I reassociated was like life changing. I was like, oh my God, I'm fine. Like, I'm not mm. really depressed. Like, these are the feelings I have. And I could like see them like a list. Like, here's a list of these feelings that are weird. And now I can look at them instead of being in them. I was like looking at them from the side. This is post 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 ketamine experience. Because mm -hmm. ketamine is short lived. This is like a half life of you know, 20, 30 minutes after you, you take a dose after about 30, 40, 45 minutes, you're back to normal. Like Why is that normal called half-life instead of just life? Uh, cause in, I, I, I don't understand that. Yeah, yeah. Because in drugs, in the pharmacology of drugs, pharmacokinetics of drugs, uh, we measure how long it takes for half of the substance to leave your body. Okay. So we think about like, the like how many half-lives it takes to completely leave but it's it's half-life it's just the pharmacokinetics conversation okay so uh, if you're saying the half-life is 30 minutes so then mean... half after about 30 or 45 minutes half of the dose has processed through your body and at that point you're not you're you still have a, in you but you're not like uh disassociated yeah gotcha so uh, you could take enough and a lot of clinics they're doing iv drips so they're just dripping it in so there's until they stop. But that's why it's so cool. Cause they can stop the drip and 30, 45 minutes later, you're, you're fine. Yeah. Unless they put 500 milligrams in you, which I don't recommend some <laughs> clinics do. whatever. Um, what was that first experience with ketamine? Was this a pill? Was it a drip? Uh, it was, what was the scene and setting for that? It, it was a recreational setting. Okay. It was a recreational setting and it was very like loving bonding, male bonding situation and people wanting to share that experience with each other. Mm -hmm. And uh, some of us, some of them were very experienced with it. And some of them, like myself, were very fearful of it. But it was, we, that group always shared this stuff together. So mm -hmm. it was like that moment where finally they were able to share it with me. That's so funny, dude. My first and only, the only time I've ever experienced ketamine was with five other dudes. Yeah. It was a male bonding. Yeah. <laughs> It's fine. It's so funny. Yeah, we, we, it was a, it was the nasal inhaler thing. Yeah, and I was with my buddy in Austin and four of his friends, and we it ended up being a creative writing session. That's what we wanted to do, um, and we all did the the nasal spray a little extra because it was prescribed, so it wasn't super super strong. So we did oh, a little oh, bit extra. Okay, cool. And uh, then we did. I think we did some breathing. Then we did some writing, and it was hilarious. Everyone was a little high, and then we jumped in his pool and ate steak with our bare hands. It was very male, very, very male, masculine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's powerful. It's it's not as um it's not as like scary as people think, except mm -hmm. when you're like really disassociated. If you're not ready for it and you're not experienced, it can be alarming. So when we do the protocol in my clinic, so I have a clinic called Evolve Healthcare and we have a ketamine assisted psychotherapy program. Um and yeah, like the first experience is always a very low dose because it's jarring and you're like, oh boy. And then you get used to it and you embrace it and then you can take go deeper and deeper and deeper. Um, but still, after like 45 minutes, it's gone. Like you just go deep and then you come back. And do you do you also have trained therapists on? And and I would assume that's not you, right? Right. So what what is that process like? So Evolve Mental Health, 
that's my expansion of Evolve Healthcare to mental health. I'm working on getting uh, full-time psych NPs to do just general. What is NP? A nurse, nurse practitioner. practitioner. It's a physician okay. extender. I uh, have a ketamine certified therapy, uh, NP right now, uh, and I'm working on getting more. Uh, these are people that are trained in administering ketamine. It's very, very safe in general, but there's protocols and there's, uh, we want to do everything by the book. Everything I do in my practice is evidence-based by the book. I do that intentionally because of what we talked about earlier. There's this gonna, there's gonna be this wild west of people like doing stuff and trying to figure it out. Yeah. And I want to establish a baseline of like, this is a place where you can get the evidence-based model, the model that's driven by decades of research. And that's a hundred percent like, like legal so that there's a diff there's a distinction between yeah there's a gray zone over there and people are trying this but there's a version of this that you could come and do it and it's 100 percent legal and it's thoughtful and it's not an iv drip 500 milligrams over the course of an hour where you're completely asleep and sedated and you can't have any active therapy under that dose and yeah maybe there's a benefit on a neurological level to those kinds of doses of ketamine but i think the real power comes when you take that right dose where you disassociate but you're fully alert and fully there maybe there's 10 minutes where you're sort of like in a, a dreamlike state but then you come back and it's during that coming back process what i was describing that i had where the disassociation allows you to look at yourself from a completely different perspective and when you pair that moment with a therapist who is thoughtful, experienced, and guiding you, not just guiding you through the trip, but guiding you through your emotions and your feelings. Someone who before you took the drug with, you had set an intention. So they understand where you're trying to go and can redirect you if you if you fear away. Cause that's important, you know? You don't want to just take it and veer off into some thought that, you know, maybe some You don't people... want to take it and drop into a K-hole. Oh, so yeah. hold on. The K-hole <laughs> is the goal. The K-hole is the goal. Yeah. All right. Great. The K-hole is one of these drug war things. They right, like right, really, right. really fear mongered the K-hole. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's, that's like, as soon as you hear K-hole, you think somebody who's just a lifeless blob on a beanbag. You no, know? The K-hole is the disassociated state that you're laying in a cloud of magical feelings and you're just in your yeah. mind floating through space. And it's one of the best places. So that's what be. that's. So within the context of a guided therapy session, that is the goal. That eventually ish ish. Yeah. yeah. Eventually like it, not everyone needs to go that deep. The okay. First session is you don't, you don't go, you don't that, go deep. that deep. Yeah. That would be uh, way too intense. Way too intense. But yeah, you try to go there. The thing with ketamine, it's so special. You don't need to go there. So there's a version of ketamine that, uh, uh, FDA approved. It's called Spravato. It's made by Johnson and Johnson. Uh, that secret, not secret, it just quietly got approved. Uh, ketamine was made in the 1950s and is a generic drug. We use, it's one of the top 10 used drugs in the world. It's incredibly safe anesthesia drug because it causes you to become sleepy and have no memory and your pain goes down and then you wake up and you don't remember anything and it doesn't cause respiratory suppression. So mm. for example, if a kiddo breaks their arm, uh, like when I was a little kid, I broke my arm, went to the hospital. Look, if you give a kid an opiate or a benzo and they stop breathing and you're giving them Narcan, it's a big issue, right? And mm -hmm. it is tricky and you don't want to give an addictive substance. So ketamine is this amazing drug. They can give you an intramuscular shot. Kid passes out. There's no concern for respiratory suppression or blood pressure craziness or, you know, addiction processes. And yet they're asleep. They don't feel pain. Reposition their arm. 
done dilly they wake up they they giggle and they're moving on with their life you know mm -hmm. and and a lot of those giggle videos that you see are that and they just you know they just don't talk about what that drug is because it was part of this drug war thing and by the way it was always legal and there was always ketamine clinics throughout these last few decades there was clinics all over america everywhere yeah they're just quiet you know now it's coming up and people like myself are really trying to push it because i think it's so powerful so um yeah the K-hole is not a bad thing. It is the disassociated state. It is kind of the goal because I don't want people asleep. I want people consciously dreaming, if you will. Conscious. It's almost like lucid uh, thought. Totally what way. it is. Yeah. It's totally what it is. And the more experience you have with it, the more you can guide that thinking and steer yourself through a journey. Mm -hmm. um, but... In the clinical setting, that's what the therapist is there for. They're there before to set an intention. They're there, there to monitor and guide. And then as you're coming out of it, that's where I think the real magic happens. You're getting this new perspective, this fresh perspective on yourself in the world. And you have someone there that can guide you through the thinking and the feelings and the emotions of it. And you do that about, um, there's an intention setting. You do about four or five treatment sessions with drug. And then I you always do an integration. The integration is so important. Thinking back on what you just did and what does it mean and how does it connect to that original intention? And sometimes it's not like the therapist has some crazy magical insight. It's just they're giving you a platform to talk openly about it and just working your way through it and asking the right questions and going back and readdressing some of the things that you had discussed in the beginning with this new perspective. That's where you're able to unlock things. And Go ahead. One more thing. Yeah. There's also, uh, from our research, we know, and you can you guys can look this up, that it causes, ketamine itself causes neuroplasticity. Yeah. And that neuroplasticity allows you to rewire your thinking in your brain. And that happens for weeks after the treatment. So that- and neuro, it, Neuroplasticity, just to break it down, because that's something I'm trying to learn more about too. That's, you're, you're, you're rebuilding- the connection between neurons in your brain that can allow for different modes of thinking about things. Is that somewhat of a way to explain it? Totally. Neurons are this, this cell. It's like a, a cell with a nucleus and they have all of these cr crazy long dendrites and they're of all different shapes and sizes. You have ner ner neurons in your brain that run the entire spinal cord. So there's a little nucleus here and it goes all the way down into your tailbone. Mm. So there are these amazing cells and they use electrical signals. They use changes in electrical current to communicate to each other. Okay. It, your brain is very good at connecting neurons and then following that pattern because that's how it learns. It learns by repeating patterns. In fact, if you play the piano physically and then you stop playing it and think about playing the piano, those same neurons are firing even if you're not doing it and you're locking them in. And then later when you come back and you do that, you're actually better than you were before. That's mm -hmm the brain going through this process of creating these connections and building these patterns. Okay. Psychedelics in general, especially like acid is a fun one to think about because it really like makes them communicate in ways they're not normally doing. And that's a fun conversation because you can like, you know, see, uh, see sound and smell yeah. colors and all this amazing. You see stuff. the trees breathe. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's called synesthesia. It's when your, your senses mix together, but 
uh, more importantly, your brain's really good at finding a pattern and then rock and rolling and doing it. Cause that's, you know, how we survive is like repeating and habits. And that that's like very evolutionary advantageous, but sometimes you build patterns that you want to get out of like a groove. You know, the, the famous uh, example they use is like a groove on a record. That groove is deeply embedded. You've been playing with it, playing it over and over again. But if you want to not feel that way or you want to change that groove, you need something to change it. Sometimes it could be a catastrophic event and you're forced to change it, but or whatever. Or, or in this case, it's a drug that actually encourages the nerves to change their pattern of firing and change their connections. Mm. And we know ketamine does that, at least in a Petri dish. Um, so, you know, you can't, you know, fMRI studies, which are looking at the brain through MRI, you can't really prove that, but they've looked at, there's uh, a correlation. Yeah. Th but yeah. they've looked at, uh, like on slides that there's, um, they've shown it multiple times that it increases the, uh, the nerves, the neurons abilities to create new connections. Cool. So it's magical in that way. So my, for me, the reason why ketamine, I think is so cool is that you have this transformative experience, which alone is powerful. And then as that you think about that experience your brain is unlocked to create new grooves and so if you're doing this over a series of time and you're really focused on the therapy i just want everyone to like really take that as like what i'm here to talk about the therapy is essential you can take some ketamine and feel good for a few weeks it's not really the key and and microdosing uh, psilocybin for example it takes the edge off but the key is unlocking your brain and re resetting these grooves and that only happens with what we call the shadow work, like the thinking about the stuff that bothers you, thinking about the things that you've suppressed and processing them and reprocessing them. Mm -hmm. And it's the reprocessing and reprocessing and creating new neural grooves uh, that is healing. That is what's healing. You know, you mentioned PTSD and MDMA, right? We can talk about that for a second. Like, so in the context of what I'm just talking about, when you have PTSD, you've created a, a dramatic, scary emotional response associated with a particular memory. That's mm. what PTSD is. You think about that thing and you have this fight or flight response. Or something reminds you of that thing and it kicks in. And it yeah. kicks in the sympathetic response and fear response and your amygdala fires like crazy and you're just, you're gone, right? So what does MDMA do? It promotes a feeling of love and acceptance and empathy, right? So what is the therapy? It's very simple. You get comfortable with the drug, you're on the drug and then the therapist is having you re-experience some or all of those feelings. But now you're love. You're in a love mode. Your heart chakra is mm. open and you're forgiving and you're empathetic. And now you're thinking about this terrible thing. And look, you can't change this terrible thing that happened to us. Let's talk about like, like a war veteran, best example. They can't change that they lost their brothers and sisters on the battlefield and watch some terrible thing go down. But what they can do is think about that again, inhibit the sympathetic fear response, induce a sense of love, acceptance, and empathy, and reassociate that memory with love, acceptance, and empathy. Mm. And that is where the healing comes from. So then when they're not under the drug, when they think about that terrible tragedy, again, the feelings, the groove, the neural groove that connects that memory to love and empathy and understanding is already been started and they can lean into that and they can continue to inhibit the sympathetic response of fear and flight. So that's how it all works. That's how it all works is it gives you a chance to change the neural 
mechanisms that drive your brain separate yourself so got ketamine which disassociates you and lets you look at things from a call it a third or fourth person perspective you've got mdma which induces euphoria love and empathy which allows you to then think about things from that perspective Mm -hmm. so when it when it comes to these um therapies both mdma and i guess specifically ketamine because that that's your I just Strongest think it's suit. so special. Yeah, yeah. I just it, think it's so special. I'm curious about quantifying a patient's need for psychedelic-assisted therapy versus typical therapy and, and what your perspective is on that. Because it, from from the people I know, it's typically somebody who's been through some shit that finds an incredible benefit from like an Ibogaine and 5-MeO-DMT therapy retreat or a ketamine therapy or MDMA therapy. But what about folks who struggle with just obscene amounts of depression? Is that like, how do you as a doctor draw that line? And maybe that's not the best term to use, but like, how do you differentiate between a patient who would benefit more from psychedelic assisted therapy versus traditional or non psychedelic assisted therapy? Very hard question. I think that's something and it might be an evolving. Yeah, I think that's the evolving. I think that's the evolving answer for me today. And Mm -hmm. I guarantee you, Brent, will do this podcast in a few years and it'll be a whole different answer to this question. Yeah, it probably should be. We're in it. Yeah, Yeah. we're in it. Like I'm I'm deep in it and everyone's in it and we're just trying to navigate and we're trying to do it safely. And we're like in the middle of it. That's what this this we'll look back at this podcast series and be like, oh, we were right in the middle of that party. Like, look where we ended up. Yeah. So um, I think for me anyway, uh, People have to be open-minded to it. People have to have failed the traditional medicines because I can't give someone ketamine who's on a bunch of other psychotropic drugs because there are interactions, and I think that's mm. tricky. Okay. I think most people, uh, people that don't want to be sedated, suppressed, and and sort of numbed anymore, and they failed the traditional therapies, they're people that should look at psychedelics. People that don't want to be numbed, and ha- even if they haven't, and they don't want to have that you know, antidepressant, that SSRI, SNRI, that creates this numbing effect. They want to try something different. I think that's someone for it. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think it comes as of today, it comes down to less about me selecting the patients and more like people being ready and open to it. There's just, it's too much, uh, fear. There's too much uncertainty and there's, there's the price of it. So insurance companies don't currently pay for it. So, um, I had mentioned Spravato earlier, the Johnson and Johnson product. I've been, approved to be a Spravato provider. I've tried like four times to get them to actually deliver me the drug. Never got it. Never got there. Why? I don't know. Okay. Their whole, they have this like system to d- dispense sure. it. It's like very, very convoluted. And I've just never had an insurance company approve it and then deliver on the medicine. The other thing is they don't make it like, I can't promote it aggressively because I don't, I'll, I'll lo- any, anytime I'll do a Spravato session, whenever I, I'm successful with it, which I'd love to, if I can, um, actually lose money because they have to sit there for about two hours after, um, insufflating mm-hmm. the drug and I get paid for, uh, just established care visit, which is about $90. So for me to have that room occupied plus a provider monitoring, yeah, it it's going to cost me more than $90. Yeah. So they made it, they approved it without making a financial model that makes it viable for a private provider. So mm. I think there's psychiatry clinics and places that are really doing like the real work that are not financial models, or maybe they're government funded or like they're funded by some other thing. So they don't have to be financially viable. They're just 
providing mental health. So imagine like a large organization, like some large corporation that has like specialties and surgical centers and primary care centers and mental health. They don't need to make money on primary care and mental health because they'll make all their money in the surgical center and the heart stuff and like the right. stuff that makes money. Right. Um, so that th- those models, they, they are able to. So you can find Spravato clinics out there. They're just tend to be like large corporate entities because financially it's not a viable model. So right now there's, it's cost prohibitive. So ketamine is very expensive because I have to pay a full-time certified, uh, either psych NP or ketamine. So because it, because it's like that, that makes you a little bit more, um, like how does that affect your choice when it comes to patients to, I mean, how many people can afford thousands? Right, right, right. Okay. So that's what creates the barrier. Got you. Okay. Um, yeah, that's interesting because, you know, I just imagine somebody like uh, a veteran that I know that's seen some crazy shit. I, that seems like I absolutely come in, when, come in tomorrow. But somebody that's like, you know, got fired and going through a breakup at the same time might. Uh, but I don't know. Like, is but that is that the world? Are, are we moving into a space where uh, psychedelic assisted therapy could begin to come closer to the numbers that typical therapy does? Can psychedelic therapy have an, I mean, I guess the answer is yes, but, but should psychedelic therapy be encouraged for folks who don't suffer from these massive negative psychological events? Great question. Two questions, actually. Will it? And should it? Yeah. Will it? I don't know. I can't imagine a version. I can't imagine it. I can't imagine a version of this where the drug companies allow it to uh, come up to par with Zoloft. Yeah. Done. Right. So there's that financial, uh, yeah. Issue. So that won't happen. Uh, it might, you never know. Laws change. Sure. 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 Laws change. Things. Public discourse changes. Uh, Look, the, the VA is doing the studies because people are suffering. So people know that people are suffering. Mm -hmm. If the government's going to get honest about the giant depression, anxiety, suicide pandemic that is actually currently going on, especially post COVID, uh, they would do some kind of financial incentives or disincentivize, uh, the the big pharma and big insurance to inhibit the process, but whatever, like that's way above our pay grade, right? Like it's yeah, it's so deep. But should it now? That's a yes. I would love to be in a world where if I have a patient that's going through a traumatic, like sure, a breakup can be crazy traumatic or like getting fired. It's a disaster for a lot of people. That I could offer them everything from a microdose psilocybin or a microdose MDMA experience. Uh, that I think should be driven by physicians and providers um, or even a ketamine session, uh, you know, an intention setting. So, you know, Oh, go do therapy. Well, what if therapy meant you did a session with my therapist who set an intention and went over what it is you're feeling right now, since you lost your job, then you did one or even two. You don't need to do five. If you're, you could just do one or two experiences with the drug and therapy and then an integration session, those four, four basically weeks, four days to have a tool to manage it that doesn't suppress and sedate that gives Mm -hmm. you, I think that would be amazing for most people. Like literally for most people, I think microdosing psilocybin would be very effective for many, 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 many people. That's the one that makes me nervous because it's, there's so much efficacy. It's so good. It really is going to be a problem for the drug companies. So we'll see what really happens with that stuff. Um, I mean, the blue, I mean, it, they, it might be too far gone. Like it, they may not be able to do anything like they like with marijuana. Like it's, you know, Oh yeah. That's, the, yeah. The, you know, yeah. so, so we'll see, we'll see. Um, but I, I do think this is something that most, if not all humans should have access to. No, 
all humans should have access to the, should they do it? That's going to be an individual decision based mm -hmm. on your health risk factors, what other drugs you're on, what other medical problems you might have. It's, uh, you know, one drug, like a, like a stimulant, like MDMA might not be a good candidate. Whereas like some psilocybin, which is not a stimulant might be better for another. So, so mm -hmm. there's a lot to that, but I think should every human have access to these conscious altering experiences? Yes. Yeah. Did we have them for hundreds of thousands of years without a doubt over time? Did that become available? Maybe mostly to like an elite group, like the, the story about Eleusis in, mm -hmm. in, in uh, Greece mm -hmm. and, and uh, Rome. Probably. I don't, we don't really know because they weren't allowed to keep records about it. So we're only finding out mm. about it now through these really amazing researchers that have kind of uncovered the story that they were yeah. using ergot ergot and maybe other substances to create wines that got you, you know, in an altered state. I think that, you know, people have been saying this more recently, like the government should not control your consciousness. And these drugs are not dangerous. If these drugs were really dangerous, I wouldn't be here talking about it, but they're not. And everyone knows that. And, and it, they did these great studies where they were looking at the burden of, um, like morbidity and mortality for a bunch of substances. And like, number one is alcohol. And well, number one is opiates by far. Yeah. And then it's alcohol and then it's like cocaine. And then it's like stimulant over the counter or uh, prescribed stimulants like MDMA, psilocybin and marijuana are at the bottom of the list. But, and, and at the even, bottom, even of the like, list. isn't it like, um, you know, I'll read about an MDMA overdose but it was it ended up being like dehydration that so what what's the huge difference fact, there love that you brought this up it's from that same we're talking about that same study that came out okay so the reason why mdma was at the very bottom is because they were looking at direct morbidity and mortality from the drug like okay let, let's yeah take, direct let's death take from the drug like opiates yeah. like you take too much opiates take a drop of and fentanyl you stop breathing and you're dead yeah, yeah. but but you literally it causes you stop that's breathing. what causes right. it right alcohol it causes you to have an ulcer or to have liver failure right, exactly. or, or to drive drunk heart, and die. Whatever. Yeah. 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 Uh, co cocaine will cause like hypertensive urgency and cause a stroke a or it'll attack. cause a heart attack, yeah. yada, yada, yada. Right. Um, but with Molly or MDMA, the trouble is you are dehydrated or you're overhydrated. So all, almost all the deaths related to MDMA are from hyponatremia or hyperthermia. Is hyponatremia? Hyponatremia is too low salt. So you become mm. very thirsty. Okay. You become very thirsty on Because you're MDMA. running out of electrolytes. And so you drink water, sweating. drink water, drink water, sweat all the salt out. And so this is like something I was talking about when I'm talking about food. I'm like, you got to drink salt water, guys. Mm. Like this whole like vilifying salt is crazy. Without salt, you die. And, you know, you know, a low salt diet is silly. It's just because our food is processed and they put all the garbage salt in our food. So they said don't add salt. But if you're eating a clean sapien diet, like we eat an animal yeah. based whole foods based, even a vegetarian whole foods based diet, you better be adding salt to a lot of stuff or supplementing with salt packets because you're going to go hypernatremic. You're going to feel like shit. You're going to get dehydrated. So the problem with MDMA is these people are taking it at party environments or they're very young people that aren't uh, being supervised and they'll just dance for four hours and yeah. get, get hyperthermic get dehydrated or vice versa. They'll just keep pounding water and that water will dilute all their salt out in addition to the sweating of their salt. So they'll die from an electrolyte disturbance. Those wow. are the, those are the, you can die from an electrolyte 
disturbance. I think that's the most common one. I can't remember which is more common, the dehydration hyperthermia or the hyponatremia from electrolyte disturbance. Hyponatremia is deadly. Uh, you die when you get to a certain low level of salt. And, wow. Yeah. Uh, hyponatremia, a condition that occurs when the level of sodium in the blood is too low. I, I've never heard that before. That's crazy. What? Very common. More than 3 million U.S. cases per year. Yeah. So that could happen um, from people avoiding salt so much. Yeah, because they're told that it's like wow. the worst drug, but go yeah. ahead and eat all the sugar you want. Damn. That's not toxic. That's crazy. So yeah. there's so many misunderstandings. And by the way, again, if you go talk to a, a the traditional doctor, they don't know this stuff. This isn't educated. This isn't stuff that, that you got to pursue and acquire this knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. So oftentimes I'll talk to a comedian and they'll know more about it than a lot of my doctor colleagues. <laughs> it's sad. It's sad. Maybe Look, I should go into medicine, dude. Well, I, Oh, this was the other question I have for you regarding <laughs> ketamine therapy. Are, are the therapists that you work with, have they experienced ketamine and have they had their own sessions? So the therapists I'm working with, it's a group with one chart leading the charge. They are, ketamine certified and they actually teach other ketamine providers they teach within the ketamine education and are very much i brought this concept to them in mm -hmm. the last couple of years and opened their eyes to it and now they're excited to try it uh, they haven't yet tried it but now it's like something they're very anxious to try because they see it mm -hmm. um, but they're just there's traditional cognitive behavior therapy. I don't think you need anything fancy and magical. You just need someone who really cares and who knows how to be kind of this third party guide. Drug, no drug. It's kind of irrelevant. The therapy is the therapy. Yeah. Sure. If you have someone who's really experienced with psychedelics, maybe, but I actually worry that they get a little too woo woo. I want very traditional basic guidance because it's the work is done in the mind the work is done by the experience it's like i don't know that the therapy modality matters as much as the person being there thoughtful attentive uh and malleable to what you're experiencing because some trips one day you might be very overwhelmed with the feelings that you're having and that therapist needs to keep their mouth shut and like hey let's put some music on mm. We'll talk for 10 minutes after, you know, you come out of it. And then other times they need to talk. They need to just say something and you need to be there to listen and answer questions. And then other times you need to coach them a little bit like, hey, it's OK. Just breathe deeply. You don't need to get anxious and hold their hand. That, that gentle humanistic touch. That's what you need. You know, doing CBT or doing this kind of style or asking these questions. I don't know how relevant that is as opposed to what is the person in front of me? What was their intention? What is their current feeling? And kind of adapting to that. And I think any good therapist with some experience with people and has a good uh, kind of sense of what the person needs in front of them can be very effective mm -hmm. in this setting. I don't think it requires that. So I think it can be it can be expanded greatly because I think there's a lot of people that are capable of guiding people through this mm -hmm. and being supportive. Um, so I, I think there's a huge expansion that's possible. I just don't know yeah. how financially and legally it's going to work. Mm -hmm. Right now, ketamine, because of the cost of the provider and the therapist and the time it takes is very uh, cost prohibitive because you just have to pay for the space and the attention. And so mm -hmm. uh, 
I can't imagine an insurance company paying for that. Yeah. So unfortunately, these experiences are pretty limited right now to people that can afford it. But the goal is to have them covered by insurance at some point. Look, my or at goal, least get the cost down. Yeah, so that my more goal is can. awareness, man. My okay. goal is people to be aware of it because I I don't know what the future holds. I, I don't think anyone. I honestly don't think anyone really knows what's going to happen in the next few years with it with all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Whether it just stays as like, hey, there's some ketamine clinics, and now we have psilocybin and you know weed stores and that sort of thing, or if there's a real push for psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. I don't know. I don't know how interested the system is on healing a lot of people and making them feel great. I worry that just like the food and drug system of, you know, disease processes like diabetes and heart disease, there's zero, there's zero effort put into stopping diseases in their tracks or curing them. The effort is to maintain a certain level of disease that keeps someone in the healthcare system, keeps someone taking medications, but they don't die right away. Right. They die slowly. That that that's the diabetes management in America is keep someone at an A1C of seven, which will sure enough slowly kill them, but it won't acutely kill them. What is A1C? A1C is a three month measure of your blood sugar, and it's what we use to measure blood sugar averages. Mm. So you know, like since it came up, like. This, this recently, like completely, I got, I was irate. I was just irate. So one of my friend's moms went to Kaiser and she came to me feeling really bad. And I looked at the numbers and she was told, you don't have a sugar problem. You don't, your sugar's fine. Her A1C was 6.7. Type two diabetes is diagnosed at 6.5. That means your average blood sugar is like 130, 140, right? Yeah. They didn't put her on diabetes drugs. They said, this is fine. And in Kaiser's system, anything below seven is considered normal. Really? Because the guidelines say oh that a God. type two, the, it, this is why though, it's how screwed up this is. The guidelines say that a type two diabetic is controlled if their A1C is less than seven. Wow. That's insane. Yeah. A normal blood sugar average should be like 5.5 or less, mm-hmm. 5.7 or less, something like that. I aggressively intervene with like lifestyle and even meds at 5.7, 5.8 and 5.9. Mm-hmm. And over here, you these, this company is taking care of millions and millions of Americans. And if you're type two diabetic, your kidneys, your eyes, your nerves are all being uh, destroyed by the toxicity of the sugar. And they're like, it's fine, but your cholesterol is five points above normal. You need a cholesterol drug. Mm. Those cholesterol drugs not a lot of good research to suggest a lot of benefit and they just keep pumping them. They yeah. just keep that whole statin debacle is, is a huge mess. Uh, it is way over prescribed. It is manipulated. If anyone look, we're statin here to talk is the drug about cholesterol. cholesterol. Yeah, yeah. If anyone wants to really dive deep, there's an amazing book by Dr. John Abramson called sickening came out last year, maybe even this year it just came out. Um, like read it. It is incredible. It's incredible. He goes into a bunch of different examples. The story about insulin, how everyone's taking insulin and jacking up the prices and how it's not necessary. That chapter alone. Yeah, isn't the price like crazy cheaper in Canada or something like that? No, there's a big story, but we have NPH insulin, which the evidence suggests is just as good as the new insulin and it's like $5. But everyone, including myself, was trained to use these new expensive insulins. And the only reason why is because they're new and expensive. 
And wow. ever since the, and, and there's these comparative studies that suggest it's all the same, but they don't talk about those comparative studies because my job, what I was trained to do is make money for drug companies. So I was trained to dose Glargine long acting insulin and Lispro short acting insulin and inject five times a day or four times a day. That's how I was trained. That's not the only way to manage insulin. It's the most lucrative way to manage insulin. And you were literally trained to make drug companies money. That's fucking nuts, dude. Totally. That is exactly what I'm trained so to do. That's so wild. All the doctors. And still, the doctors. and it's still that way. And if you read the book, you'll find out that actually as I was entering the healthcare space in the early 2000s, that's when it ramped up. That's when... So the whole story is evidence. There's a recent article too. Evidence-based medicine has been like hijacked and it has. In the 90s... And before, like, it was like, I don't want to misquote the book, but it was like a very, like, not as significant a proportion of the research was driven by drug companies. And there was a lot of federally backed research and private, and you can make studies. Now, after the 2000s, like, I think it's 90% of all research on medicines and therapies are funded by drug companies. Yeah. Which means they own everything. They... And by the way, and they get into it and people are talking about it now, they, when they get approved by the FDA, they do not have to deliver the raw data. The FDA reviews the data that they have already chopped up, parsed out and deleted what doesn't work for them. And they present that. That's the only data that the FDA gets. So evidence-based medicine, the way when it was coming up as the new model of teaching doctors in the 90s is completely hijacked. So instead of coming to the practice in the 90s and giving doctors money and trips and stuff to promote their drugs, instead, they just bought everything else out. And the only drugs that are approved are their drugs. Mm. So either way, so so we got rid of... The, There's like a villain in a Batman movie. Oh, I think the drug... <laughs> look... They're just a business, though. When the government gives you free reign to do what you want, in 1970, right, so we were making vaccines, okay? There was a lot of problem with vaccines. Mm -hmm. We had some really amazing vaccines that transformed the world. I'm not talking about the COVID vaccine. Not talking no, it's about okay. That. You, since you said the word vaccine, this entire so, so, episode will be taken I'm off just, of YouTube. This has nothing to do with the COVID vaccine, <laughs> just so we're clear. I'm just giving another yeah, yeah. example of the dominant power of the drug companies. Yeah, 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 yeah. So before they started making vaccines and they were getting sued a lot because of side effects, especially with peds. So they were like, I'm out. And this is all in the book. Peds is perf uh, pediatrics. Pediatrics. Kids. And they were like, we're out. We're not going to make these. We can't get sued. So what did they, they passed a law. I think it was 1970 or maybe it was 1980. I think it was 1980. And they basically, gosh, I'd love to look it up. I think 70 or 80. I don't know why I'm brain farting it. Whatever. Mm -hmm. I think it was 1980. Um, basically saying that you can't sue them. You can't sue them for a side effect from a childhood vaccine. Since that time, the number of childhood vaccines skyrocketed and every, and and you cannot sue them for a side effect to the childhood vaccine. And it, Damn. it, it transformed the landscape and it, you couldn't I find, find it. No, I, need uh, I need a young Jamie. We need a young Jamie. We need a young Jamie, but it's still I like that today. I mean, didn't Pfizer and Moderna say, uh, you can't sue them for, so oh, that I mean, was specific for any vaccine. No, that was specific to the, the job. Yeah. But, uh, uh, yeah, you'll know what to type in more than I will. That's nuts. They said if something bad happens when your kid gets the shot, this shot, you're not allowed to sue us. 
1981. It's called the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act. Oh, yeah. I have heard of that. Of course yeah. you have. Yeah. I've only heard of it within the past two years, of course. Right. Because this became a whole issue. Uh, National vaccine created. Da, 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 da. It provides compensation to people found to be injured by certain vaccines. So the government will compensate for the injuries because you cannot sue the drug company. That's so crazy. the company. So the government bailed out the drug companies so that the drug companies would continue to make vaccines for children. And why would the government? Because imagine suing that? the government is much more difficult for a vaccine injury than suing the drug company. Good luck suing the government. Right. So then the, so, so what happened was, is there's just no, and then anytime anyone said that my child was injured by a vaccine, so they were called crazy anti-vaxxers. The government and the pharmaceutical company creating the vaccine, both of them wanted everybody to get vaccinated and neither of them wanted anyone to sue for bad shit that happened. So the government bailed out the vaccine. So the government, so, um, Ugh, I hate that I guess, we're talking about isn't this. The, that's okay, though. We're going to get censored. Dude. Probably. This is like such a hot button thing. It's a hot button thing. And obviously, there's more to talk about within <laughs> outside of a two-hour podcast. But yeah. um, So how does, that, how does that play today, then? So today, does that context map itself with uh, you not being allowed to sue pharmaceutical companies for things other than vaccines, too? Like prescribed medicines? Uh, does the government still have this workaround where you, they, they're working with pharmaceutical companies? They, they just protect them. Well, so first, first of all, the government agency that's, that regulates them is paid for by them. So like, that's yeah, it. Like, there's could, already end of conversation. The yeah, FDA okay, is yeah, right, paid right. for by the, the companies that they're supposed to regulate. So game right. over, like that doesn't work. So like, so like the, it's, I was trying to use these examples of like how flawed the system is and how it really has no interest in, in people's health. It has interest in, in making money for organizations. Um, I think the pandemic showed us very clearly that our uh, public health system has zero interest in anything but making money. And they will take any opportunity to make money. And they don't care about the side effects. They don't care about what happens to people's mental in fact, it's good for them because they'll have more work for them to manage and more, you know, things to implement for mental health programs. Like it's there's no interest in human health. The interest is in making money. Um, and this com this part of the conversation started with the book. And I cannot do justice to the message that Dr. Abramson puts out in that book. It's all very clear and it's all very not conspiracy. It's all just like, here's what happened. Mm -hmm. And it's sad. And it really put us down this path. And I'm here talking about mental health and psychedelics because it's the only useful tool that I see um, that's new and that's been presented. And, and just like my food stuff, it's not new. It's old. It's yeah. us going back to the past and being like, well, we weren't this screwed up thousands of years ago. We died from broken arms and infection, like a little cut in your arm would kill you. So again, it's it's not this black and white thing. Oh, Western medicine and drug companies are all bad. That's not the point. It's like, it's not about polarizing or taking a political position. There is none of that in this conversation. There is, we evolved to be the dominant species on this planet over hundreds of millions, hundreds of thousands, probably millions of years. If you go back to pre homo sapien ancestors, we evolved to be the dominant species on this planet. We were not these like barbaric 
cavemen that just died at 35 and just were gross and barbaric and beat each other up. It's like not true. And probably if you listen to guys like Graham Hancock, there's been a lot longer history of human societies that have just been wiped away by cataclysmic events. Super fun thing to talk about. Which Ancient Apocalypse on Netflix. Watch but, it. Or just listen to everything Graham Hancock says because yeah. whether or not you believe him, it's fucking cool. It's crazy. It's so fun. Yeah, yeah. But my point is, is like, like we have just, we're so far away from like what made us who we are that we don't even know like what it looks like to like eat normal food. Right. We're over here. We spent two other podcasts talking about eating meat. Mm-hmm. What the hell is everyone talking about? <laughs> there is there is no human being without meat. Yeah. There is no human being without animals dying. Like you, you can't just make everything a little sexy topic. Oh, we now have PETA organization. We have to pander to them because they're afraid for every animal. Go fuck yourself. It's like, <laughs> no, that's not, it's not consistent with real world, the real. Right. And, and, and I feel like it's important for our leaders to emphasize reality. Um, but then it could get really weird and you're like, yeah, but aren't we all going into the virtual world and there is no more reality and it's all, I actually think it's even more important as we get more digital, becoming digital and becoming more in that space. It does not mean everything has to become worse. It actually means there's more information. There's more opportunities for education. There's more opportunity for people like a therapist. We could have been in this environment and it could be a therapist digitally talking to us and we could be sharing a psychedelic experience and there's a therapist. We'll do that for the next episode. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just saying there's like a million versions of a healthier world than the bullshit that we're offering people now. So to me, psychedelic therapy, marijuana, psilocybin, ketamine, um, these are like powerful, essential tools that we have used for hundreds of thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years. And we need to bring them back. I don't, I'm not here to explain the solution of how to do that. I'm yeah, here to yeah, be yeah, like, yeah. it just makes sense. I think the solution, I have a fucking solution, dude. Dose everybody. <laughs> Dose them all. Timothy Leary I, tribes out, bro. And yeah. that's what happened with the drug war. Yeah. Dude, that yeah. whole, I know you're T- joking. Tune in, turn on, turn, well, uh, the problem is, yeah. is they got too laissez-faire. If you dose people with acid and they freak out, well, now you give the government and the media a really easy story to vilify this stuff. Sure. So, you know, I love that. I know you're joking. You're a comedian after all. But but, like, but when I when I say dose people, like, yes, I want to sneak into every politician's bedroom at night and dose the water by their bed with LSD. They're already doing it. I, no chance. No fucking chance. There's no way politicians are doing psychedelics besides a couple like bernie maybe fucking mitch mcconnell that old ancient turtle he's never touched anything i don't know there's no chance they're They're, actors they're they're actors on a political stage yes but because they're actors on that political stage i don't think they have the ability to transform the way they think because they need to commit to to the bit they need to commit to I'm on this side and that side's bad and here's why and the, this was the election was stolen and vaccines are the way to go and all the things that they have to fucking fight for. And sometimes I, I do a bit on stage where I talk about how I want everybody in the world to, to, world to do mushrooms at the same time because it would turn the planet into an 8 billion person Burning Man tent and I would love that. But I do, and that's the joke part of it, but the serious part of it is I do wonder sometimes if the people who are leading the charge at Big Pharma and the people who are sitting in the Senate and fucking AOC and Don Jr., you know, if all of these people had 
a, like a, a therapy session or did a, a hero's dose of mushrooms? How much, how different would, would be? the operations be in congressional meetings, in the Senate, in all these places, in the on the debate stage? Half the fucking debate would be a heart to heart. You know what I mean? Imagine, imagine be, if they did a debate and took a microdose of MDMA. That's what, like, yeah. That'd you be know insane. what? I love you, bro. Let's do this together. Oh, you're right. Dude, we should be working together, dude. States are different, and that's fine. Like Trump doing MDMA, you know, that'd be incredible. Biden Trump's, doing mushrooms. Trump's done everything. I, I think Trump's I a real dude. I don't think so. I don't think so because his brother was an alcoholic. And he said he's been sober for like decades and decades and decades. Maybe. I think he did cocaine in the 80s off of strippers' asses. Like everyone For did. sure. Yeah. yeah, he snorted coke out of a butthole for sure. And I applaud him for that. But I don't think he really fucked around with other stuff. Yeah. Well, and I think if we did, we would be able to like see it. Like it's we, those ego drugs, the alcohol and the cocaine and the stimulants. That's like what I think a lot of the these ego. people have yeah. done yeah. over the years. Maybe not in recent years, but... It's it's the ego destroying medicines that I think need to start peppering into upper levels of society, into those you know uh, the political space and 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 the law, the uh, shot callers, the change makers, the law people, all that. Kind Here's of stuff. a fun thought. Like, okay, so making a distinction between the ego building drugs, the stimulants, the cocaines, the alcohol, the nicotines too, they mm-hmm. make you feel all like. Like, oh, I'm the man, right? Yeah. Those are not really healing. They're super fun, I guess. They can make you productive. Let's not pretend that they can't. They can. There's like benefits to them, but generally are not like t- about healing your emotions and making you more spiritually present, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the four drugs that we talk about now, I'm just going to present the four that I think are really interesting. Uh, and then I'll present the 19 I, that I think. Yeah, are there's really a bunch of other. <laughs> no, there's so many others, but yeah. I'm just, I want to present some kind of content I think that is interesting to me. So, uh, there's four drugs that I think are really, really popular and people should think about and at least have an understanding of those uh, as the whole uh, psychedelic space opens up. So mushrooms, MDMA, uh, ketamine, and LSD. Like those are like probably the four most common, mm-hmm. most popular, uh, most prevalent for sure. Um, so everyone knows someone who's yeah. tried. It's a bit those. more out of reach for an ibogaine or a 5-MeO-DMT. Exactly. Okay. Or even ayahuasca. I think those are mm-hmm. like uh, definitely uh, those are the, just the mothers the, for sure. Those are just. Yeah, right. And those are those other drugs. I just don't want to poop with those. Just as interesting. Just as. Oh, powerful, yeah. 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 Very even good. more so. Sometimes. But like just yeah. where I'm I'm always trying to hit people that are listening because I'm like a general medicine doctor and I talk to the general population. So most people are not going to know about those drugs, but they will know about the four that I just mentioned. Cool. Name, I'm, name them again. Again, psilocybin. So magic mushrooms, MDMA, which we called ecstasy in the 90s and 2000s. Uh, uh, ketamine, which was vilified as the K-hole, but like most people's kids, if they've been to an emergency room, have had a dose of ketamine mm-hmm. if, if, if they've been in that situation. And then uh, LSD, which we haven't talked about that much, but is an important drug uh, nonetheless, because it kind of opened the door to a lot of this when Hoffman Dix discovered it in the 50s. Yeah. Amazing story. I'm sure you had someone else talk about it. And I have the bike but ride. we can. He, oh. he, can I do, do it? You do and it. Then, and I then love you it. fix it. And then no, you fix no, it. No, no, you got it. We he was it. in his lab. So this is what I know. And then it, this is going to be spotty. It's good. So he was in his lab. He, uh, the, the, you know, uh, urban legend is that he got some of it on his hand as he was um, creating the compound and messing with different things. Took a bike ride home, tripped balls on the bike ride, came back the next day. He had this euphoric, amazing, incredible experience. Came back the next day, synthesized it again, did a much lower dose, 
discovered that it could potentially have some type of use, had no idea what that use would be for. And so the lab that he was working with had him and other doctors uh, or uh, chemists synthesize it even more. And then they mailed it all over the U.S. and I think Europe and other places too. They mailed free acid. To all these, without anyone knowing what it is, yeah, without yeah. anyone knowing what it was, it wasn't it wasn't acid yet, um, and they mailed it all over the place, saying like, "Hey, what should we use this for?" Kind of that was like the general theory, like what can be the practical use for this, and it got to the U.S. Uh, and obviously leaked out of the medical community into society, and that's when it started getting a foothold in culture and being used bit by bit for personal use. And then that led us into the 60s and the anti-war movement and the activist movement. And then that is when Nixon realized, oh shit, all these hippies aren't going to go fight in the war. And we need people to go win this war because I have a huge dick and I need to prove it. So I'm going to call a war on drugs. Was that a pretty (laughs) good good. summation? I feel like that was pretty good. (laughs) It was like probably 70%. 70%. Okay. I'll just throw in some like fun things. Please. He was researching some kind of medical stuff. It was like very traditional. He was like, we're like heart disease or like prost. It's like he was looking at a drug for something very, very like real medical research is what he was doing. Okay. And he accidentally got a drop, but it was like five or 10 times the dose. Yeah. It was like a ridiculous, like a ridiculous dose amount. He did the bike ride and then he like started playing with it. He rode his bike home. And, yeah, rode yeah. his bike home. So all that stuff is good. So that was just a funny thing. Um, he And he was Dutch. This was in the Netherlands. Yeah, right? and then it got out to the States. The, the other like fun story about it and uh, is that like the government was using it to do research as a truth serum. And oh yeah, MK yeah, Ultra. MK and Ultra. That, so yeah. that, I just wanted to Yep, definitely. We're not gonna like do all that because that's been talked about on a million podcasts, sure. but like like the story of acid is all very, very interesting. It's and wild. the government was yeah, very yeah, involved. And you know, like the Unabomber was one of the test subjects. So mm-hmm. like they they wackadoodled a bunch of people. And so. um Charles Manson. Charles Manson, famously. Yeah. So like acid is very powerful. Of all those four drugs, is the most overwhelming and powerful, and no novice should do it. And it's very not one that I would bring into the quote-unquote medical space. I do think there's a role for it, though, um, especially for uh, psychonauts and people really seeking certain truths. And I do think it should be legal and available to people, not sold on the street, in a store because it's way too powerful for that. But I just don't think that that magical experience, that transformative experience should be like illegal Mm -hmm. and, and said that it's like, like, you know, something so scary because it's not and you can do acid and not lose your mind. But like if the government loads you up on acid and shows you crazy pictures and makes you a freaking killer that's like a real thing and that's a real story and our government really did that and that's MK not, ultra look it up yeah it, it's it's not like a secret anymore yeah, it's so not like a conspiracy so like when you hear about like oh my god is it possible that the government you know is in cahoots with the pharmaceutical industry and all that stuff dr gary saying is true of course it is yeah it's not like even weird it's not even weird the government like does this all the time so when, again, when I, you know, said stuff about like the recent me- medical situation in America, it's not really like that crazy to suggest that they're just winging it when they make up rules. Okay. I'm not going to go into that. Yep. All right. Back to the four drugs. Okay. So, the, so we have these four um, medicines that 
the drug it's funny to call medicines and drugs like sometimes i'll call drugs medicines and my friends from home will be like bro are you tripping right now and i'm like nah dude you need to evolve uh so we have psilocybin mdma ketamine and and lsd and why have you identified these four because they're available because they're They're the most readily available readily available they're popular and they're not um so like with ayahuasca and ibogaine they can be very very unpleasant Mm -hmm. right like the actual physical the side effects are quite unpleasant Mm -hmm. Um, these are not that that's why they've been used so much recreationally so i think it's important if you're gonna like take or promote these kind of drugs like if you have an option to do an ayahuasca retreat where you're gonna vomit for hours and hours and there's a huge role for that, but you can also just do some ketamine and have a similar experience. Like at least try the, I would try the ketamine first. Cause like you don't need to vomit and be like a hot mess. There's also problems. So I, I'm just picking the four that I think that are the most popular, the most in the culture, the most used in a recreational state and ultimately have like a very good side effect profile. So you can use them and not be a hot mess. Yeah. Okay. So that's why those four probably also personal experience, like, because I'm in the culture of the world in America right now, those are the drugs that are available. You can't really go pop an Ibogaine on the street or right. like at a music festival or whatever. Yeah. When I say street, I don't mean some dude on the street. I mean like uh, home, in, personal space, in like whatever. the world yeah. that we live. Okay. So I thought about these drugs as four. There's four things that each of them provide in the most specific way. Like each of them provides something very special. And I think if you think about him in that way, that's how I would then in the future, hopefully be able to say like, this would be good for you based on like what your goals are. So uh, MDMA is love. Psilocybin is nature. Ketamine is answers. And LSD is questions. Mm. This is what they deliver to your mind. When you take LSD, and you have this experience of synesthesia and the whole world transforms to something that is not there. You have full vivid hallucinations, colors, like something that is blue is no longer blue. Something that you hear, you can now see, or something that you see, you can now smell. That is a complete transformation of how you perceive this world. And you realize that you are just perceiving the world. What is really around you? You have no idea. You're just seeing what your eyes can process, what your ears can process. And then on top of that, your brain is filtering out like 80% of the information so that you can even have a, something you can wrap your brain around. You know, there, there's a lot of experience that you're having that your brain just filters out, right? Like your brain is a computer that takes in information and then just gives you what is relevant. So here's a drug that I can like say, well, what your brain thinks is relevant we're going to change what it thinks is relevant. We're actually going to make new connections rapidly. We're going to change that whole percept sensorium experience that creates questions. Mm -hmm. It really does. You ask yourself, what is that really? Or what do I really feel like? What is music? Is that wave really just a sound wave or is also like a visual wave or like an energy wave that I can feel Mm. these questions come up, which really drove people to open their mind and expand their mind. And it really makes you question everything about the world because you realize everything about the world is just a filter of your senses and then your brain senses. And then that's what you get. And Mm -hmm. like, you can have a completely different experiences. And perhaps if you grew up in a different environment and your brain's filters were different, you'd perceive different things. 
Now that is scary. Yeah. And that is why that drug is so vilified during the sixties. You made the joke about like these hippies will never go. Yeah. They're not going to go to war if they understand that the world that they're being presented with is very, very different than the reality. Mm -hmm. So asking questions as I did, as I do as a doctor, as anyone who asks questions that gets suppressed right away by anyone trying to control you. Hence why LSD and then LSD also has a very, very, very long half-life. You are high for like eight to 10 hours on mm -hmm. it. So that's another challenge of that drug. Um, it's also very like once it's on, it's on. So if you're not experienced, you can freak out because there's no escape. Yep. So that's that. Ketamine is answers. Why is it answers? Because all it does is disassociate you. Most people are stuck in one way of thinking about something or they cannot see past themselves or past the way they think. So the power of that drug is by letting you look at yourself in the third person. I always give this example of like you're here. Imagine if your brain kind of your mind kind of shifted to here. You're still here. You're still but like you're looking at yourself operating almost like you're controlling a video game. That is yourself. Sure. People have described it in that way. Yeah. Like, so it's forget about the recreational fun part of that. That's not what we're interested. We're interested in the fact that it releases you from the way you're thinking and you can now look and see, oh, there's the answer. Like for me, kind of an out of body experience, kind of like when I finally discovered it and I was doing it, I actually did it in a very much a personal transformative way. Mm -hmm. And I would look to see parts of my life and I would literally be able to have a conscious dream of like this thing that I'm thinking about would come across me. And if it didn't fit me, it was like, obviously like bad, like this doesn't fit. And then I think about something else and it like really fit or it felt right. And I could just clearly see the answer. There was no like, I like her. She's great. You know, like people struggle with the relationship. I should probably break up with her, but I don't know. Blah, blah, blah. Well, when you go third person, you're like, no, that is a bad person for me. Or like, dude, I'm being an asshole. That is a great person. I need to like work on that. Like that's what the third person disassociative state gives you. It gives you answers. I, I think that's the power of it in general. Mm -hmm. And then once you see those answers, you can actually change your mind because of that neurological uh, neuroplasticity effect. MDMA, we actually kind of talked about the love mm -hmm. and that's why it's so powerful for love, trauma. acceptance, heart opening, empathy. Yeah. It's so important in a world with trauma or in a world where we don't talk about our emotions so much. You, the vets are just a perfect example of it where they don't have resources and they come back to a culture that doesn't talk about emotions and feelings, especially with men. And they have all of these hatred and fear and, and anger. And to be able to present like a, just a potent feeling of love and, and just like, by the way, you don't have to feel this way all the time. You can feel love again. That alone is curative healing power. And for so many people, that is what they need. And they don't need to do it every day. They just need to be able to know they can access that. And once you can access that feeling of love and your heart opens a little bit, you can find it there again sober. Or you could go on a run and find it. Or you could hold your partner's hand and find it. Or play with your dog and find it. And you see so many vets that are just shut down and they have these experiences. And then they can like build a relationship with a dog. And now they feel fulfilled because they have a meaningful relationship. That's love. Mm -hmm. That's like the most important human emotion maybe ever like of all of them, like yeah. love is what we want to anchor ourselves in. So that's why that drug is so important. You know, and they're trying to come up with a brand name for MDMA right now yeah. for when it releases. Cause they have to have one. You can't just call it MDMA. It's like putting water in a bottle and calling it water. It's yeah. like, you can't do that. Liquid. Just what it is. <laughs> so one of the, one of the names that, um, 
uh, I heard they they pitched, but they're running it the way that they're coming up with a brand name for it. Uh, Rick Doblin said is is they're running through like seven crazy computers that are comparing the pitches for the brand name to every existing drug and product and brand and copywritten piece of language that exists. And if it's 70% or more similar, they can't use it. Oh. So their their leading one that they ended up not being able to move forward with was InPath. Oh, cool. Kind of InPath, right? Yeah. It's kind of cool, right? Because like some some uh, brand names for medicines are really cool and they make sense. Like ProVigil, uh, makes it was originally for pilots to stay awake and like so pro and vigil is just like very yeah. makes sense. So I pitched him a couple. Um, What's your favorite? The one that I pitched, I pitched two. One was in deepen. Oh, in deepen. It sounds too sexual. It's a little sexual. Yeah, yeah. But also MDMA can be kind of sexual sometimes. But in, I, I'm also not a fucking brand <laughs> marketing guy. Uh, but in deepen or um. What was the other one? In, uh, in deep. It was something about deep. Both of them were deep. So I guess both of them were sexual. But I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, that they're trying to come up with a brand name. It is, yeah. Kind of trying to come up with a brand name that matches. Anyways, psilocybin is the fourth. Psilocybin is the fourth. It's probably the one why I think it's so important because nature. So we have this world where we're super disconnected from our natural world. We mostly live in cities that are really weird. Most of us are online on our phones. We've just lost that connection to nature. So any drug that can reconnect to nature. And so it's the most obvious one. And it's why microdosing psilocybin makes so much sense because you realize like you're in a natural world and like there's beauty in plants and there's beauty in the person in front of you. And so that also induces empathy to other people and opens your heart. So these aren't like isolated things, but it's just a good way to think about it. So someone who's really stuck indoors and really sad and like not connecting with the world, psilocybin's a great option. Someone who's really cut off emotionally and has been traumatized from like childhood, MDMA is a great option. Mm -hmm. Someone who is stuck in their decision-making and stuck in their processes of life and can't figure out their next step. Ketamine is a great option. And someone who wants to see what else is out there Curiosity. and expand their yeah. consciousness for the sake of it and see what else they can think of, LSD is out there. So I think it's a really fun way to look at those four drugs. Obviously, it's not all-encompassing, but it's palatable, mm -hmm. and it makes sense with everyone's experiences of them. And remember, these drugs, the consistency of experience. It's not like if you do it and I do it, we have like magically different hallucinations. There's a reason why on acid, there's like the pictures that they drew in the 60s. Like That's what you experience. It's yeah. a very consistent, reproducible thing. So it's not really a hallucination. A hallucination is like a random thing you're thinking and seeing in your mind that's not there. But like the consistency of the experience really doesn't make it a hallucination. And that's why you think that's about Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a pattern that, that yeah. becomes established. Like I remember I would prior to dipping into the world of psychedelics and prior to my first LSD trip, which was a massive experience, I had seen, you know, uh, tapestries of sacred geometric, sacred geometry patterns and geometric shapes and fractals and all these great, like this Mr. Rogers painting behind me, shout out to Danny Stevens, all these other, uh, crazy like art and, and the way people would dress at a concert or a festival. And I would always be like, what the fuck? What is, I don't understand that. And then first time doing LSD, I was like, oh my God, I get it. Yeah. I get it. I understand. It, it, it opens your perceptive ability to a whole new realm 
of design, color, and just stimulation that's coming And out. what's out there in the world. I uh, was always afraid of LSD. I was super sold on this, like, it's going to ruin my brain. And mm-hmm. I, like, love my brain. I like being able to think through things. Brains are cool. It's great. I love it. Yeah. Um, but then, like, it kept happen- it kept coming up. And then this whole psychedelic movement. So I'm like, I got to try it. I really have to have an experience with it. And I was always, like, very guarded because I didn't want to have a bad experience because psychedelics and drugs have, like I said, set and setting, controlled. So I was finally at an opportunity where we were at a music festival on the beach Literally, we had a condo on the beach next to the music festival, and the it's it's in a hangout music festival in Alabama. Highly recommended. Gulf Shores, Alabama, like for the best. Cool. Like on the White Sands Beach. So I'm like, all right, well, what a better place if I don't have a good experience? I'm gonna walk, you know, a hundred yards to my uh, to my hotel and just sit there and be like, I'm never gonna do this again. But like, let's try it. And one of my favorite bands was coming on, and I'm like, well, I gotta do that traditional experience of like listening to like one of my favorite bands because i'm a musician and i love music and like whatever mm-hmm. so i take it with my best buddy who had done it a bunch so I'm, I'm telling this story because there were all these things i did to make sure i had a good experience and that if anyone ever thinks about it they should do those things make sure you're with an experienced person make sure you're setting settings right make sure you have a safety net to get out if you have to get out make sure you're really prepared for it have an intention of like what kind of experience you're looking for whatever just to rehash that yeah Get out there on the beach. I'm like, I don't feel anything. It's great. I'm like, whatever. <laughs> it's like nonsense. I'm not going to feel it. And I'm walking up and it's um, AWOL Nation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they start playing. And I like look up and the blue sky is red with blue lightning bolts. Like, like a totally different color than it was. Yeah. The sand has turned purple. Like full like purple. And I'm like, they're playing their song and I can see the sound waves pulsating out wow. of the speakers yeah. and they're changing colors, sort of mixing with the colors. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> and my first thought, because I was ready for it, I wasn't like scared or anything. And my first thought is like, damn, all those stupid pictures from the 1960s. This is really what it looks like. <laughs> like it looks right. like that. Yeah, like they, yeah, yeah. they were just painting yeah. what they saw. And I'm like, yeah. I always thought it was so stupid and cliche. And I'm like, like the Jimi Hendrix pictures. I'm like, no, like that, they were, that's, that, that's yeah. what they were seeing. Mm-hmm. And it was so powerful. Like I'll, that whole, that album and that band, I'm like now like attached to because of that experience. And my buddy who like shared it with me, it was also special, but it, did not stop. It went on for eight hours. I, there was many, many other bands we wow. saw. Yeah, I was exhausted by the end of it. I've only done it three, three times. I, I don't recommend doing it a ton, but it was like eye-opening and magical, and special. Like very, very special. I feel like grateful for that experience. Like blessed to be in an environment with friends where I can do it safely. And like have that kind of, cause people have bad experiences too. Yeah. I could see like in a heartbeat how it could go bad. Oh, for sure. Set and setting is huge. Yeah. That's, um, that's always toward the top of my priority list at the top of my priority list. Whenever I'm going to experience something like a psychedelic, um, dude, we did, we hit two hours. Amazing. You feel good. I feel great. How do you feel? I feel great, dude. Uh, I love you so much. I love you. Bro. I got, I, I gotta, I think we got to wrap it up cause I got to shoot starting a little later today, which is going to be about mushrooms. Yay. Actually, we're going to shoot. Um, this, uh, it, it'll come out by the time this episode comes out. So it's going to be uh, a dubstep track, a music video about the whole story of how Santa is based on shamans. Oh, I love it. And mushrooms. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. going to be a good time. Yeah. Do it. Um, is there anything we didn't cover that you wanted to talk about? Cause we can do this all again. Also, we could, I love talking to you. I don't know. I just want to, 
I just wanted to share this. I've been. I, I love the perspective, especially from somebody who is so, or at least has been so in the system. Right. And you have such a unique perspective and to have the ability to put your brain outside of that system in this experience and, and start talking about things that aren't talked about a lot within the Western medical training space. I think it's really cool. Thank you. And it's very important. I just want people to, I'm so, I was so scared to do this podcast mm-hmm. in general, but I'm like, it's just such a positive and special part of my life. Yeah. And everyone in my life knows it. And now it's becoming apparent to many, many people. I don't, I can't imagine just being like tight lipped about it because yeah. it's like, there's so much there that can help millions of people. And there's so much in our history that suggests that it has helped us get to where we are mm-hmm. that I cannot live in fear. I have to at least share some fun stories and a perspective that, um, is, I don't think all that unique. I think there's a lot of people that think this mm-hmm. way and there's probably a lot more doctors than I even think. We're just, we're taught to be afraid, to protect, to guard, to... You're taught to keep the volume of that thinking down. Yeah. And the volume is slowly but surely getting raised, for sure. And I just want to be a part of it. And I, when yeah. I heard you were doing this series, I'm like, fuck yeah, do it. Whatever I can do to support and... Uh, Hell yeah. Keep it up, dude. I love you so much, bro. bro. Dr. Bro. Dr. Bro. Air hug. We love you. All right, everybody. Oh, wait. Before we leave, where can people find your stuff? I'm just on Instagram at drgaryevolve. Uh, Been a lot less active, but you can always reach out to me there. And if you want to check out my practice, learn about the ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, it's at evolvehealthcare.com. Cool. And I'll say all that in the beginning as well. Right on. Love you so much, bro. See you, everybody. And that's it. Thanks so much to Dr. Gary for cruising by and blessing us with his vibrations. And thank you to you for receiving those vibrations. Check out more at Dr. Gary Evolve on Instagram. You can also check out evolvehealthcare.com to take a look at more of what Dr. Gary does. Who knows? Maybe he'll become your doctor and you'll become his patient. And then you mention me and he'll say, wow, really? You know, Brent? And you say, yeah. Does that mean I get a discount? And he says, no, that means you actually have to pay more. So the choice is yours. <laughs> uh, guys, check out um, the uh, Good Trip Instagram at Good Trip Podcast on Instagram for weekly clips and more. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Subscribe and rate and share. Do all the things on the Spotify and the iTunes. You have no idea how much that helps. It's ridiculous. Uh, but please do it. And I really appreciate it. And I appreciate you all. And I hope you have a wonderful week. Go drink more water, please. You're probably dehydrated. Peace. <laughs>